Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And we're back with another Spy Master interview celebrating the sound of 007 Cam. Who do we have joining us? Yes, we are talking to Matt Whitecross, the director of the Sound of 007 documentary that was released on Amazon Prime to coincide with the 60th anniversary of James Bond. Yeah, so I think without further ado, Cam, spin up that interview. And joining us now on the show, the director of the fantastic documentary The Sound of 007 is Mr. Matt Whitecross. How are you doing, sir? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. No, it's an absolute pleasure. I, I had the unique privilege of being in the audience at the BFI when you screened it just ahead of time of its release. So I was one of the few who saw it early. Thank you very much for coming. Yeah, it was a really fun night. Um, it's weird when you work on anything. I mean, it must be the same for you guys as well, but you work on something and you're in a bit of a bubble. And particularly on, on documentaries, I think when I've done dramas, you can have anywhere up to 100 people working on it. But on documentaries, it tends to be quite a small core team. So there's only really four or five of us in a room, sometimes fewer. Sometimes because of COVID, we end up in lockdown at home. And so that happened. I mean, we were really up against it to try and get to that deadline because we knew we had to be out for Bond Day. And that wasn't going to shift. And it was the 60th anniversary. The, sh- the 60th anniversary wasn't going to shift. So we just we knew we had to had to somehow get it out. And which initially at the beginning felt like it was going to be fine. But then actually the film went through various different evolutions. And in a nice way, there were lots of people who all have a stake in it. You know, there's a lot of people for whom Bond is their baby, you know, not least obviously Barbara and Michael and Greg now, and then, but also MGM and also, uh, you know, Amazon in the end. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a more protracted process than it's sometimes been in the past. And also just because it was such a tough nut to crack. Because we had somehow in 90 minutes to tell 60 years worth of history. And it's a lot of characters and a lot of music and so on. So, yeah, we only finished it about a week before you saw it. So it, it was a lovely night because I, we, we were sort of like, it's out. Um, for better or worse, whether people like it or hate it, it's, it's done. And you, you can sit and enjoy it. And it is, it is what it is. It's done. Are you able to relax when you're sitting there at the premiere watching it with the audience? Or are you still kind of in creative mode? no you can't relax there's a kind of weird i mean for me anyway there's a kind of weird high like you have this kind of simultaneous kind of gut-wrenching like knot in your stomach but at the same time a buzz because you can hear where it's working you can definitely sense in an audience where okay this is actually no this is they're they're getting it or they like it or you can definitely sense if there's any longers and if there's any moments where it's oh yeah i kind of think we could have worked on that more all of that, you definitely feel it. You're, you're, all your senses are heightened. Um, I think I'm more relaxed in this day and age once you've got a few under your belt. In the early days, it was absolute agony and you kind of have to leave and just sit at the back of the big screening room and run in and out and, and all you can see is the mistakes. And I think now I've, I've learned with more, you know, a little bit more experience, just you got to let it go. It's not yours anymore. You worked on it, you did everything you can and for better or worse, you know the faults of it probably better than anyone else will ever know. <laughs> you know, there's normally a reason for them. And there's, you know, there's all kinds of reasons for why it works and why it doesn't work. And so you just, at that point, you you know, even if there's things in there that you would have done differently or you feel you could have got better, it's too late and it's out there and you just, just enjoy it for what it is. 
Well, it, it, it was interesting because after watching it at the BFI and coming home doing some sort of due diligence and sort of reading about it, I didn't know that you'd actually created, firstly, some music videos that I really loved. The the Flood, Take That video, I think is one of my favorites, right. actually. Oh, thank I, you so much. It's a, a wonderful song and a wonderful video, actually. It works really well, uh, especially with the sort of relaunch of having the five back together. I thought it was a really nice touch, that, uh, that Thank video. you. No, no, that was, a, that was a fun one to do. I, mean, I think with the music videos... It's kind of more or less where I started out. I and mean, we kind of started out simultaneously with music videos and just starting as, a, you know, trying to make short films and, and then also working initially as a, as a runner, as an assistant, and then working my way up through editing and through second unit directing and so on. So, yeah, the music videos is something I still do now. Uh, I nearly only do kind of almost exclusively we just work with Coldplay now just mm-hmm. because I'm lucky enough to be able to do that. And um, But... Yeah, every so often the phone rings and it'll be a take that or it'll be, you know, whoever, Liam Gallagher or someone, and you just go off and step into that world for a couple of days, which is amazing. It's wonderful. And you've got the Rolling Stones under your, under your belt as well. That's uh, another one. Got the Stones and the belt, yes. Yeah, and um, and it's, it's funny because every single one of them is a completely unique experience from my point of view, even when it's with the same bands, because it's a different song and it's a different time and it's a, possibly a different, you know, era for them, different feel. And uh, and for me, it's like, you know, the least experienced person on any film set, just by the nature of these things, is the director. And so when you're doing a drama, and even when you're doing documentary, even if you're prolific, you're still like the, the camera person will be finishing one film on the Friday and doing another on the Monday. And so they might, you know, under their belt, they might end up be doing music videos and doing commercials and doing everything and everything. Uh, so they, by the end of a year, they might have done 12 projects. Whereas if you're a prolific director, you might maybe do one a year, maybe one every two years. Some directors do one every five years. So you're having to lean on other people for their experience. And often, you know, a a shoot might last five or six weeks and you probably spend the first week just trying to remember how to do your job. (laughs) So the more you can go off and do another music video or or anything, go and shoot something in between, the easier, so the more relaxed you become on set. And also, you know, even if you have a long life and you have a long career, you just don't get to do everything. Like the chances are I'm never going to get to do a martial arts film. But if someone rings next week and says, have you got an idea for this music video? You're like, wow, we could do a Kung Fu story. Or, you know, we just got to do a Coldplay video with the Jim Henson company, which is amazing. We did another one with them and uh, and these guys called um, The Imaginarium, which is Andy Serkis and his mm-hmm. team. So using all the performance capture software and all the, the you know the, the setup that they use for avatar and everything else i mean that's amazing like you know i wouldn't get to do that on a small indie film and suddenly you're stepping onto that and you've got a more borderline limitless budget so you can just say okay we're going to do this this and this and so that you know the music videos for me aside from just being fun and also being you know there's less pressure for it to make sense you don't have a lot of opinions and especially when i work with coldplay mm-hmm. it generally tends to be me and the band and Phil, who's their creative director, and that's it. And those are, that's all the cooks you're going to have to deal with. So it's a bit like making an insanely expensive home video where you're just having fun. <laughs> there's a bit of pressure, but there's still, still like you're just getting to try things out. I I, um, I was looking for the list of, of music videos before, and I think like in terms of Coldplay, Paradise is the one that really jumped out to me. It's one I definitely remember because I, 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 outside of all this i do a lot of music work and it's like i look at music videos and i think it's a bit of a lost art in ways like i from when i was younger it was definitely a thing that was focused on and there's yeah. still great work being done much like yourself but i think for a lot of people it's sort of not as focused on anymore same with album art as well um 
but yeah, both great ones I pointed out there. But let's let's go back a wee bit and just talk about you getting into filmmaking in the first place before we get to sort of Bond and everything like that. What, sure. what prompted you wanted to get into filmmaking at all? Well, I probably the same motivations that a lot of filmmakers have, which is just this, it's like the most addictive and expensive drug in the world. And once you get, it gets its hooks into you, whether as a viewer or as someone who, you know, you feel like you might want to do it for a living. It's very hard. You know, I think it's like any art form, you know, whether it's music or dance or whatever, it, whatever floats your boat. Once that thing gets into your head, it's just that it, it completely, especially at a young age and an impressionable age, it just, it completely takes over. And so I remember as a kid, just becoming completely obsessed and addicted to films at a very, very early age. And I think just, you know, because obviously it's one of those things, you're kind of captive audience as in, in when I was growing up, there wasn't much else to do growing up in, in Oxford, in the suburbs, you know, you just said that was, that's what we did. And so I'd hang out with friends or hang out with my parents or, or, by, or once you got into it later and later into the night, just watching more and more and more stuff. And it was really only, you know, you had to kind of, there was a, a, a kind of autodidact thing that you had to do because there wasn't the internet and, you know, you learned by going to the library and finding books and you would read in the, in the paper, oh, there's a, there's a film called Touch of Evil. Sounds amazing. And then you might have to wait three years before you can actually get your hands on it and watch it late at night. And it would be at one in the morning and you'd have to stay up and tape it and you press record. So you really value it in a way that, you know, now that everything is accessible, somehow it becomes more disposable and 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 I don't I don't know you know obviously I'm I'm middle aged now but if I was getting into film now in a weird way the fact that everything is accessible means that maybe this is too busy and it's harder to try and you know make your own taste and you don't discover things in quite the same way so I I just got the bug really early on my dad was into kind of mixture of different films he was into kind of you know gangster movies like like from the 40s and 50s he loved Humphrey Bogart and Kirk Douglas and but Lancaster, Robert Mitchum, those kinds of guys. So I watched all those films. My mum was more into kind of more art house stuff, but also musicals. So I'd watch a lot of those. It was, it was a very eclectic mix. And then you start finding your own taste. And I, I guess at a certain point, probably when I was 10 or 11 or something, I started thinking, well, these things don't just exist. You know, they happen. They happen to be, they don't just like land on this planet. They, they're, they're created by people. But I had no idea how you wouldn't even go about that. And so you start reading books on it. Because again, there's no DVD extras at that point. There's no DVDs. There's no way really of finding this stuff out. You can't go online and watch a behind the scenes video because that doesn't exist. Um, there were there were amazing critics and filmmakers like Mark Cousins and Alex Walker used to present this thing called Movie Drone. And there was Moving Pictures as well, which was, that was my film school, really. I would just watch those things. They'd have a scene by scene where they'd, you know, Mark Cousins would get David Lynch or he would get, you know, Catherine Hepburn or whoever it was that week. And they'd sit and they'd go through her movies and you start to realize that these things are formed. There's a, these, these amazing creative forces behind them. And then it was like, well, yeah, but how the, how the hell could I ever do that for a living? So I think initially you feel like, well, I can't do that. But somehow you know that you, you want to do that and you're going to be feel a little bit empty inside unless you get a chance to at least step into that world in any capacity. You know, at that point I was like, look, I want to be a director, but I'm sure that's impossible, but maybe I could learn how to shoot and I could be a camera person or I could be an editor or something, you know, or a runner or anything. I'll just do something on a film. And um, my dad bought uh, like a home movie camera, uh, just a, like a high eight camera. And so me and my brother, we only had about six tapes. So we would go and shoot movies. And obviously there's no editing software. So we would have to, and I think this was quite a useful uh, kind of limitation was that if we wanted to shoot the film, 
we'd have to d devise the film, figure out what the shots were, figure out what the dialogue was and shoot it sequentially. And if we screwed up on any tape, you'd have to rewind the tape and try and record it. And it was glitchy as hell and almost unwatchable in a lot of cases, but you figured out how to do it. You had to be very disciplined about it. And, um, and then I, you know, there were a couple of film courses that were local where I went in and they gave you a 16 mil camera and you learned how to use that for over a weekend. And that was it. And then, and then I, I, I was at a certain point, I, I was, there weren't really undergraduate courses that you could do at that point in, in England. And I was thinking, I just want to go out and I'm, I'll become a runner. But then I, a lot of people said, let's go to uni and study anything, study English if you love books and you love storytelling. And, and that's the same kind of thing. But you know, maybe just, just, just get to enjoy that experience. And while I was there, the first, I think probably the first or second person I met when I arrived in, in UCL in Halls was Chris Martin. Who went on to form a band and the other the other three people i met were in the ended up being in the band so completely miraculously i, I met those guys and i was into music and i'd hang out with them a lot and film them a lot and film a lot of other stuff and then when i finished uni i carried on making short films and i shot music videos with them but i you know this was before they even got signed just us having fun and shooting things in the streets and then uh and then i got a job and my first proper job in the film industry was as a runner for michael winterbottom and I was, again, it was kind of a miracle because he was my favorite British filmmaker. And I somehow, I heard this job was going and I turned up and they, I didn't get the job. So they gave it to someone else. And then I went on holiday and they rang me day two and were like, listen, this guy's useless or he's quit or something happened. You got to come back. So I, so, you know, I think there's an element of luck and there's an element of determination. I was like, you know, I could have just said, no, I'm sorry, I'm on holiday. But obviously I'd caught the next flight back and started making cups of tea for famous people. But the... Nice. The great thing about Michael and, and the way that his philosophy and I think Andrew Eaton, who was his producer at the time, they had this company called Revolution and their thing was like, look, you know, anyone can go out and do it. You can like you're here. There's only five of us under one roof. What can you say? So the same day two, he walked into the office and was like, OK, you know, introduced himself, said, who are you? What do you want to do? I was like, oh, I want to be a director. I want to, you know, I want to be he was like, OK, but what can you do? I, was like, I can do anything. I do whatever you want. I can I can shoot. I can cut. I can write. I can. He was like, okay, fine. And then I just carried on at that stage, you know, sending faxes and printing scripts and doing that for about nine months. And then he'd obviously clocked it because they were doing, so on 24-hour party people, they needed someone to come and shoot second unit. And so he was like, oh, you know how to shoot. Okay, we can come in. So it was me and, and the other runner effectively running around doing second unit. So we shot a lot of the stuff, ended up in the film. And then he was like, well, we don't have any money to pay for someone to do the trailer. You'll, you'll do the trailer. So I ended up editing it. And it just carried on from there. And that was my film school. And then I worked on the next film he did. We traveled to the border of Afghanistan and traveled all the way back with these guys playing refugees. And, uh, and then after that, uh, I carried on making my shorts. And, and then Michael came back to me at one point because I had this idea that I, I wanted to do a film about these guys had just been released from uh, Guantanamo and I was editing for Michael at that point. And he said, well, why don't we do it together? And it was amazing. You know, you know again, this is one of the, the top directors on the planet saying to the person who was a runner a couple of years before, do you want to direct a film with me? Which still to this day doesn't, I still can't quite compute, but you know, he stuck to it. I think it, uh, it was, that's testament to who he is and his generosity. And, and he went off and was shooting a film with Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon, Cock and Bull Story, while I was prepping on Road to Guantanamo, and then we and then we went off and shot it, and it and it, uh, it you know it got a lot of attention, and meant that I got an agent, and then off the back of the agent, then I wrote a bunch of scripts. No one was even vaguely interested. They were pretty dark and very political and very uncommercial, 
one was set in London and it was a kind of there was that era when there were a lot of those kind of triptych films or those films where you had a lot of different you know casts so like Amores Perros or like um, Magnolia and it was kind of like that with all this like eight different casts all around London around the time of a London bombing and they're all connected they're all there on the scene they're all affected in different ways and then a few months after it, it looked like it was looking quite positive to see if we could get some money and then the actual London bombing happens <laughs> so that was shit we definitely can't do that and then I was writing another one, which is about the war in Iraq. And it again was pretty heavy. And everyone was saying it's too soon. It's too soon. And then, and then about a week later, it was, you know, one after one weekend, it was like, no, it's too late. There's a bunch of Hollywood films been made. So there was obviously a sweet spot of a weekend when it was probably doable. And so I, I, then I, with my agent, she just said, look, you're sitting at home with your scripts and your integrity, which is great, but you're also, you need to eat and you need to learn how to be on a film set. So why didn't, so I just went off and did a couple of jobs just to kind of learn, I did, did some a couple of jobs with um, the company Kudos. Uh, there was like a spook spin-off and another thing, like a kid's thing where I did, you know, just went off and shot on a set with like big, big, big crew, like great actors. And even though it wasn't my thing, and I think for me as a slightly, you know, kind of uh, pushy, maybe a bit arrogant young director, I said, no, 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 it's got to be just my thing. But actually it was invaluable because suddenly it was like, you're on a set, you've got to make the day. It's someone else's thing. So you're coming and trying to make it the best that it can be, but it's not you. So having to deal with all that uh, and, you know, you've got, suddenly you've got 40 crew instead of when I was working with Michael, there was, you know, on, on in this world or on Road to Guantanamo, there was like six people on set and suddenly there's 40 people on set and they're all looking at you and, you know, you've got six minutes to try and get three shots at the end of the day and you've got to do it and, and they'll pull the plug. I've never had that experience before because on Michael's films, we were all like families. So mm. if we didn't get the shot by seven o'clock, then we just carry on till we got it by two in the morning. But you can't do that to a, to a kind of jobbing, uh, more traditional film crew, it's not fair. So yeah, so that was it. And then, and then one thing led to the next. So sort of like running concurrently with that and maybe going back to your childhood as well. I mean, was there an interest in, in Bond? You mentioned like your family's influence of films. Was that something you liked as a kid or is it something you found as an adult? What's your sort of relationship with James Bond? I, I think probably like most people, especially in this country, but now internationally, you know, I was, I grew up with Bond. So it's, um, for me, it's all these, these stories are almost like folk tales and the music is almost like the national anthem or like nursery rhymes. It's like, I, there's no, I can't even remember a time before Bond. So whether it's watch, sitting down and watching the films, I don't know which one it would have been. I mean, it would have almost certainly have been, uh, you know, like a bank holiday. It would have been around Christmas time or Easter and the mm -hmm. entire family sitting around and probably the extended family, you know, my, my, my uncle and, uh, and our cousins sitting down specifically to watch the Bond film. And I'm, I assume it would probably would have been one of the Roger Moore ones. And it was, and then the music, it's even before that. It's so funny. I, I didn't really occur to me. And I remember talking to Barbara about this, that, you know, I was saying it's funny now having three young kids and obviously reading stories to them. And my parents used to do this thing at the end of, uh, you know, uh, you know, when you sit there and you're, you're reading them to them for what's supposed to be 10 minutes, it becomes 20 minutes, it becomes half an hour. At a certain point, you've got to go, no, lights off to be continued. And they would do this sound at the end of a chapter. They kind of go, da, 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 which from, you know, at the time I was like, oh, they're just doing the funny to be continued noise and then it wasn't till till actually i was talking to barbara i was like they can't i've been and i, I started doing it to my kids i was like i'm singing them the bond thing so from from birth that's been in my life probably the same as it is for everyone else and so i was always a fan 
if it's funny because I I went through a phase of I think you know the funny the, the funny thing is the Bond films stay the same but you change, mm-hmm. and so there are different periods where different songs and different Bond films work for you and become really important to you, and other times when they don't work for you, the Bond the, the films and this music is is the same but somehow you've changed, and I find that for film and music in general, you know, if we were to talk about my favorite film, it's very different to my favorite film when I was ten or twenty, and so I think I loved. James Bond, I love big mainstream cinema. I love Back to the Future, I love Jaws, I loved Star Wars, all those films growing up as, as most people do. Then as I, I discovered more cinema and more indie cinema, more art house cinema, more you know, films that are harder, you know, that are kind of deliberately more challenging, uh, less entertaining in an obvious way, then I would probably distance myself. So I think for me growing up, it was Roger Moore. Roger, I loved Roger Moore. Roger Moore was funny and and quirky and uh and just like he and suave and all those things he was just like he was the perfect bond and my dad when we would watch a, a sean connery film he'd be, ah, you know he's this sean Con- it's sean connery like sean connery's bond roger moore's who's this imposter and uh, for me i was like no roger we, sean connery's scary he's like he's dangerous he, you know <laughs> he doesn't treat he's not nice and then obviously later on you start to go well maybe that's that's good and maybe that's closer to what a secret agent would be and similarly, then, you know, with Timothy Dalton and with, uh, you know, George Lazley and all these different people that you discover later on. So I think I moved away from Bond for a while. And I was like, I moved away from any kind of mainstream entertainment because I needed to. And the same thing with music. You know, I couldn't like music that other people liked because I was a pretentious little shit. <laughs> you know, as soon as something became popular, I had to move away. I had to be the first person to discover music. And then I had to be the first person to say that those people had sold out. whatever. I mean, I grew up in Oxford, so I. You know, I got to see Radiohead and Supergrass and Ride and a lot of those Oxford bands when there was, you know, 30 people in the audience. But then, and I'd have the mixtapes and the demo tapes and all that kind of stuff. But then once they started becoming successful, I'm like, eh, you know, I can't, even though I love the music, I was like, yeah, it's okay, but you should have been there at the beginning. And I think it might have been the same with Bond that I needed to kind of rediscover it later on. The great thing is that you can rediscover it because it's constantly, you know, appearing and, and evolving. So then the first film, Bond film I saw in the, in the, I guess in the cinema was, it was definitely Living Daylights. And I remember coming out and loving the music and going out to go and buy the AHA single and playing it a lot. And then, and then, yeah, I think probably around the time of Piers Brosnan, I loved Goldeneye, but then I think I, I just started moving away and feeling like, oh, you know, it's just, it's, this is big commercial cinema. And I don't think that's a problem really with the films because when I go back and watch them, they're very entertaining, but I think it was just a period in my life where I was like, no, no, I'm going to go and I'm going to watch hard fil- films that are difficult to like and difficult. And I need to kind of watch a hundred times to understand. Even then I'm not going to understand. And then I think I've, as a, you know, now that I'm in, when I was in my thirties and forties, I think I went back to that, I gravitated back to that kind of stuff. And certainly when Daniel Craig became Bond, then I fell in love with that. And I think it's kind of the perfect blend of, of it's a kind of mature, but it's still very entertaining. It's dark but it's still thrilling, you know, all those kind of things. So it was kind of tailor made for someone who's, who loves entertainment, but is a little, feels a little bit guilty about it and feels like they need to be punished a bit and watch something that's, you know, like, like with, with Craig, he doesn't enjoy his, his job and he gets progressively more and more screwed up as a result of it, which struck me as, as a truer version of what it must be like to be in the, involved in MI6. So when you were, you know, watching those Bond films when you were young and continuing on, like, when I look at your filmography, there's so much tied to music. And obviously that's such a big part of Bond. Did you really 
look at those movies with like a musical eye in those days? Or was it kind of like a secondary thing that it wasn't really till later you would really reflect on? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think I did eventually really get into the music. So I think, I think particularly with Bond, the music is so front and center. Uh, you know, certainly the, the, the songs. So there's no way you can avoid the songs. And the songs, are, you know, you have the equivalent of a kind of MTV music video before MTV at the beginning. So I would definitely know those songs. So that kind of, that, you, can't, you can't ignore that. That demands to be heard and noticed. And everyone has their favorites and the ones they think work less well and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, with the music, I, as soon as I started getting into films, I, I discovered John Barry, I think through Bond and became obsessed with him and, and collected a lot of the LPs and went back and the more obscure the film, the better. And the, the music is uniformly brilliant as well. He doesn't really, you know, he doesn't phone it in for, for, for smaller films. So there's, even though I think, uh, you know, I, I liked a lot of the, his scores for films that I still probably today haven't actually seen, but just love the music for them. And then went back into the John Barry 7 and listened to that stuff. So yeah, I, I got into that music through Bond. Um, but the scores in general, I don't think I would have gone and really explored his scores for Bond. It was the other stuff he did. I think I got, got into it that way. And that was more of a process through this film, because although, of course, I, like, I, like everyone, I, I knew and loved the songs he'd done for Bond, and I knew the, the great job he'd done with the, with the theme, and I knew there's certain ones where I think I had a couple of soundtracks I probably had on Her Majesty's Secret Service somewhere, and I had, I don't know which other one I would have had, but yeah, probably The Living Daylights, just because it was an important one for me. But it, I didn't know them inside out, and... It was not until, you know, coming back to this film. I think I, I you know, I, I really enjoyed what David did with, um, particularly with Casino Royale. So I, I think I went out and bought that soundtrack after watching the film. But I wasn't a kind of Bond nerd. I don't have any Bond tattoos or anything like that. So it was more this, that came as a result of the research on this. Well, it's interesting looking at this and, and sort of discussing your career leading up to the point of the documentary. Because as Cam sort of said, there's so many parallel lines here. You've got documentary making you've done i actually have seen already the supersonic one with oasis you also got the coldplay one head full of dreams as well all building to this point plus seeing the bond films growing up and the love of music and it culminates in you doing the sound of 007 i think it's probably the uh the perfect um sort of uh, the recipe of everything you've done so far so I, I suppose the first question when it comes to sound of 007 is how did that opportunity come your way yeah, I mean, it wasn't, you know, I'm not, I don't know if I was necessarily the, the um, obvious choice, only in the sense that, you know, for them, I'm sure they had plenty of people they could have gone to. It was more to do with my, with Barbara's relationship with John Batsik, who's the producer, and they made the Everything or Nothing uh, Bond documentary right. together about 10 years ago. And so I'd met John a few times through the years. I mean, I, I'd always, it's funny, because I'd always considered myself a drama director, but I happened to drop in to do a couple of documentaries along the way, which was which I loved. And then it got to a point when I'd done enough of them, I was like, oh, this is great. I kind of, I, I was alternating at one point, doing one documentary, one drama. And then um, after having, I got to a point where I'd been offered a couple of bigger projects, which just as we were starting our family and they were going to take me away from the family for a long time. And then Supersonic just kind of landed on my lap. So it was not really a kind of conscious move i don't i don't think i've never planned a career as such which is pretty pretty obvious if you look at the things i've done because there's no kind of rhyme or reason to it particularly other than trying not to repeat yourself too much or just find something else you know embracing a new opportunity and um so i i talked to 
John Batsik, uh, who's a, a great uh, documentary producer, and has you know he did uh, Searching for Sugarman, and he did uh, The Rescue recently, and One Day in September. He's, he's, he's an amazing producer, and we talked a lot about different potential projects. As I was doing more documentaries, a few documentary producers kind of came to me and said, "Look, let's start talking about what we could do." And two of them came close to happening; they didn't happen. And then uh, we were working on prepping on this Paralympics documentary, which hasn't come out yet. But he just rang me up one day and said, look, would you be interested in going to meet Barbara and Michael, uh, the Bond producers, and just have a have a chat with them? They've got they've got an idea that they've got to have this anniversary, but they're not really sure how they want to commemorate it. And they thought maybe a documentary is the way to go. And I was like, well, I don't know if I'm the right person to do it. But on the other hand, obviously, I'd love to meet them, you know, for the reasons that, that we were saying. It's like I'm, I'm, I love those films, but there are other people out there who know them inside out, who are obsessed mm-hmm. with them. Uh, whereas I just I, I just love them as a fan, but it's not like I don't have any bomb posters on my wall. I don't know the dialogue inside out, and I have friends who can recite. If you got them, start them off with uh, with um, uh, Doctor No. They could probably just sit there in real time and recite the dialogue and hum the cues. Yeah, I'm, that's that. You know, I don't I, I don't have that level of of uh, nerdiness. But um, anyway, so we, I was like, no, of course I'd love to go and meet them anyway. And so we went into Eon, which is over in Piccadilly, um, and in, over in Mayfair and we and we met up and it was just before Christmas and I think they I'd read obviously that they were going through all this stuff that Danny Boyle had been on and then Carey had come on board so they had very big fish to fry at that point and they were about to go off and start shooting I think or prepping so this was I mean it just goes to show how how their minds work you know how they plan months years in advance for for the next thing and the next thing like, because they just they have to and um and we sat down and we, we had a bit of a brainstorm and, and it was great because they're very down to earth. They're very approachable. You know, you just don't don't know stepping into that world what they're going to be like. They have very good reputations, um, you know, universally. And uh, we speak to anyone about, about them and, and everyone speaks very highly of them, not only kind of their intelligence, but they also they're very warm. People talk about the Eon family and it really is does feel like an, a family business. You go in there and you meet everyone and everyone works and they're in and out of each other's pockets. And people come in and, and work a lot as, as part of the same team. So we kind of brainstormed a few ideas. They said they had this anniversary coming up in a couple of years. And that was it. And then, you know, as we were walking out, they had these big Technic Lego Aston Martins piled up. And said, oh, just take a couple of those for your kids. So we, that was it. So I thought, well, look, they, you know, if we never hear back from them, then it was a very nice day. And we got to hang out and uh, go and have tea with Barbara Michael. And then I, we just didn't hear back for over a year. And so, you know, obviously they went off and shot the film. And I... I, in my mind, it's like, well, they just gave it to a, a better director or whatever, you know, the usual thing. It's not like you don't always get the gigs you go in for. Um, but then I got a call from John one day and we were in one of the many lockdowns just saying, um, listen, I just got a call from Barbara saying, look, what's going on? When are we making this film? Which was great. But also I then at that point, I then had two other projects potentially lined up. So I was like, well, how am I going to juggle all these things? And but the, the difference between working with Eon and working with most other people is just that they make things happen. So, you know, the protracted process of getting most films made, I mean, less so with documentaries. Documentaries are easier because they're smaller and, and they tend to happen quicker. But um, this is the other joy of making them compared to dramas where you, I've been working on a couple of dramas for 10 years and we're still not on set. So you have that kind of timeline. But this was like, got on the phone to Barbara. Barbara's like, yeah, look, we want to make something of, of the different ideas we floated. They had actually proposed doing something on the music. And they were like, well, that's the one we want to go for. I was like, great uh well you know i've got these other things coming yeah okay fine well let's just get on the phone we're going to pitch it we got on the phone at that stage it was apple 
um, on the phone to Apple, you know, you do do one of those Zooms where it's like 40 people on the call. I kind of said, well, look, I think it could be kind of like this and more or less pitched the, you know, the, what we've ended up making. And um, in the end, they're like, okay, that sounds great. Oh, yeah, brilliant. All right, well, we'll see perfect. We'll speak soon. And then about an hour later, Barbara's like, yeah, we've got the money. <laughs> I mean, it's just unheard of. So, so yeah, so then the next day I was like, oh, right, well, I guess we're making it. And um, these other films have to wait. And and it happened very quickly. And then, but then the next part is, okay, well, look, the challenge as we started off by saying today is that how do you squeeze 60 years into 90 minutes? Because they were, we were pretty, everyone was pretty upfront that we want this to be a one-off and we want it to be ready by next year. And it can't be a minute over 90 minutes because that's what we feel is, is right. We want it to be a kind of short and sweet, punchy thing. So you can't do it. You can't cover every song and you can't probably do it chronologically. But, and I was like, okay, well, maybe that makes it more interesting. You know, it's, it's going to lead people back to this, to the music, maybe, maybe make people reassess the, the scores of those films, but it can't possibly be a kind of, you know, a go through and nuts and bolts every single last detail, even though the original cuts obviously did. So we started off by just going to speak to as many people as possible, read all the books, watched all the documentaries, got all the archive in, listened to the music a lot and then and then it was like okay well we started off by doing it more or less sequentially and just covering every single song and every subject you know from the idea that um you know the the opening titles because obviously that's 50 percent of what you what you're watching when you're listening to the song in the film they kind of created the music video arguably and, and they were mtv before mtv even to the point with sheena easton who we interviewed we had a whole section on everyone from morris binder all the way to um, to Daniel uh, when he he makes the new ones, you know. So so we did all of those things, and and it was great. And then you know then you realise that it can only be ninety minutes, and you cut three hours out. Of it and that's what you're left. <laughs> well, do you think that like you know you say you weren't like a Bond obsessive? Does that like actually give you a better ability to in some ways oversee a project like this? Because if you hand the same kind of material to someone who is just a diehard Bond fan they are going to want to make the Ken Burns Bond documentary, right? Yeah, I think that's that, there's definitely an argument for that. I mean, it's, def- it's happened on other films. So, for example, we, we ended up making a film called Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll um, a couple of years after Road to Guantanamo. And I kept on saying no because I was like, look, my dad was an Ian Jury fan, but I, I just only know a couple of the songs. You know, I, he used to play uh, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick and Reason To Be Cheerful around the house. So I knew the songs and I knew the lyrics. I was like, I don't know anything about this guy. And the producer, Damien Jones, was just like, no, no, that's why we want you to do it, because we want to. We don't want someone who is going to do a, a reverent version. It should be now looking, you know, and and, um, and I guess maybe there's an element of that when you're coming into projects, you know, you have to kind of go to Bond boot camp. And similarly, we just, we'd just done, the year before, we'd done a documentary about the, the Kings, the Four Kings boxing. Now, boxing, you know, I've seen quite a few fights, but I'm not, again, I, I, I've only been to a couple of fights. I have very mixed feelings about boxing in general. You know, the idea of generally for of poor people having to fight each other for the entertainment of the masses, it just kind of leaves and, and, and there aren't many happy uh, boxing stories. So I, I came into it with complicated feelings, but again, the producers on that, James Gay Reese and Paul Martin, were like, no, no, that's why we want you to do it because we don't want to do just the kind of... The obvious front in you know, a boxing front and center we want to do a political film that happens to have boxing in it and so and that's what got me excited about that so you know so each time i think i've ended up learning a lot on the jobs i don't uh, with the exception of probably coldplay 
because I'd grown up with them. I don't think there's ever been a film that I've worked on dramas or other. Oh, and Ashes, I did a film called Ashes, which is about a man with Alzheimer's and my dad had Alzheimer's at the time. But other than that, most of the projects I've done, whether I've been hired to do them or I've written them myself, have been about subjects that I don't know that much about initially. So, you, you know, obviously you've been set this task by uh, the powers that be, uh, Barbara and Michael, and they said, it's got to be 90 minutes. That's that's your cutoff. Fine. Um, when you got started, obviously you, said you sort of went through sequentially. That makes sense. What was your goal with the documentary? What story did you sort of want to tell with it? Well, that is it's a great question. And I think that's the question that we kept on asking ourselves throughout and we kept on coming up with different answers. So initially, my feeling was like, well, first of all, let's just celebrate the music. Obviously, that's that's the that's the primary reason. You know, I think music is obviously essential to film in general, but particularly so, I think, with uh, Bond and particularly if you take all those the big blockbuster series that people know and love everything from Harry Potter to Star Wars to, to Bond. For me, it's Bond that it's the most essential for, and it's the most, and it's the it's the, the most unique in the sense that it's it you can't really separate it from the films. You know, I think if we, if we look at Doctor No, for example, as we went back and rewatched it, I was like, that opening scene on on Connery, why is why is it so iconic? Well, it's not because of Connery, because Connery doesn't turn up to the end of that scene. You're tracking in on the back of someone. You're cutting to people around the casino. Why is it exciting? Why is it sexy? Why is it edgy? It's because of that theme. We don't know it, and then then you see him, and that's kind of that's the climax. But that's only when the when the thing you know begins to kick in. Before then, it's you know. So I, for me, it's and then similarly throughout the fact that it evolves. Whereas you know the music, as iconic as all those John Williams scores are for Raiders of the Lost Ark and so on, when the new indie film comes out, it's going to have the same score. It's not going to have a, a modern score. It's going to it's going to it has to be nostalgic. And but Bond evolves, you know, and it it evolves through all these different kind of. Uh, phases everything from swing music and lounge music to rock and roll to techno to you know uh, to Hans Zimmer uh, and uh, and the kind of whatever you want to call uh, that kind of insular stripped down thing that Billy and Phineas do in terms of the songs so it kind of evolves and, re and it reflects the modern era because Bond is is set in modern times always it's always set in the, in the present day but it reflects it through this this kind of whatever the quality that is that, that is Bond so it's a very very interesting from a documentary perspective in a way that other music is harder to talk about because then you start getting quite nerdy. Whereas I think you can actually talk about Bond in a more interesting and accessible way because it's it's so unique and there's so much to talk about. So, yeah. So, well, it, it, as far as the story went, I just, I so we started off by going, well, look, we want to celebrate the music, but then how do we give this kind of shape and structure? Um, then I kind of started thinking, well, well, maybe, well, let's, first of all, let's do the research and just get everything in and maybe it'll present itself. But in the meantime, we the initial approach was we'll, we'll tell the story of John Barry and that'll be our overarching spine because he did most of them and he did um, and he kind of invented the Bond sound so we'll start with him then we'll back off from him and we can hop around but then we'll say goodbye to him because around the time of the Living Daylights that was his swan song and, and he even appears in the film and so we had um, Mariam Darbo and uh, John Glenn and other people talking about how he'd become disillusioned and felt like he'd had nothing new to say and then we went into a whole extra bit about his future career we went into you know specifically into films like out of africa and dance of rules and told that part of the story then we went all the way back to his childhood and his tricky relationship with his father and his father who owned a string of cinemas uh, where they also used to perform music but he, he he really treated his his son he's treated john very badly and there was this kind of melancholy at the heart of him 
that creates this amazing music. So it's a kind of perfect storm of all these elements that creates the John Barry sound, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, we had all that in. And um, and then we would dip in and out of Bond films. And because of obviously the, the fact that Hans Zimmer and David Arnold were so influenced by John Barry, they had to be. So therefore we could use that as a way into the, into the later films as well. And we had a whole section on how David passed it was passed the baton by John specifically, and we had footage of that and so on. So all of that was great. But at a certain point when we started getting feedback, people were like, look, you're really making a John Barry documentary. <laughs> you know, you've only got 90 minutes and you're spending far too much time on him, which is, you know, completely fair enough. And that's why you, at its best, I think that's why it's a collaborative thing. And I definitely felt coming into this that Barbara and Michael, specifically an MGM, this is their baby. It's not mine. I'm coming in to try and tell the story, but they're the ones who really know their stuff. So, so they're very, they were very good on that. They're very supportive. And we ended up starting with some of that stuff, showing them pieces. And then we also had these kind of masterclass uh, bits where it was like David Arnold explaining how he did Casino Royale, Hans Zimmer explaining how he, you know, he and, uh, and Steve Mazzaro wrote the end of the, of No Time to Die. So all those bits, which for me being a music nerd were complete heaven. But at a certain point, I was thinking, is this is this too much? You know, maybe it's an added element too too many. But what was great is the first time that Barbara and Michael came into the edit, they they sat down with us, and I there was a big pause after we showed them it, which I only cut you know over a few hours the night before, just sitting there trying to put something together for them to look at. And then at the end, they both said, "Look, that's the that's the best bit. You need to do more of that," which was great for me because I assumed they'd say, "Listen, you know, general public are not interested in this kind of stuff, in that level of detail." So then, but then, so then we had to kind of think of something new. And then, and then I had this thought that maybe we should bring in a new artist to try and write us a Bond song. And that could be the thread. And we shot some stuff on that. But again, people were like, look, you don't have that much screen time. You can't get all the Bond songs in. You're going to bring in a new Bond song. It's like something's got to give. Um, but then I, I think the more time we spent with Hans uh, and then getting to talk to Daniel Craig and Barbara and Michael, the more it felt like No Time to Die is, is certainly like a kind of bookend in Bond. It's the end of the Daniel Craig era. And luckily for us, I think that Hans Zimmer and Steve went back and they kind of brought in every single element they could find in all of John's music and, and got, went through the history of, of Bond music and really threw all of that at the score. So we then ended up using that really mostly as a kind of, that was the spine of the film. And then we could dip back into the, in the past that way because we knew we couldn't just be purely chronological. But yeah, it was, that was the tricky thing. It was not... It was not an easy brief. And on documentaries, I'm more used to just kind of going off and just finishing it. And then people have comments at the end. And it wasn't like that on this, but that was that was fine. I kind of knew it would be like that. And, you know, it's with Barbara and Michael, you have this kind of hive brain along with Greg, along with all the people over there, Stephanie and so where they know this stuff better than you ever will. They've lived it. It's their lives. So you get to kind of dip into that from time to time. And then they opened up their archive to us. And, you know, there's there's more footage there than almost more than we had time to watch. So we were still finding new tapes even towards the end. So that partly dictated the kind of stuff we showed and didn't show. And if we felt there was too much repetition, that was something else. You know, the Duran Duran story is funny. And then we had a whole aha section about like you thought we had it bad with Duran Duran. They kind of came to a kind of grudging mutual kind of respect, even to the point where they went over to go and visit John in the States. That was lovely. And that kind of book ended it. And then Aha came in and then he really got the hump and had, had enough. <laughs> and then there was like, people were like, listen, didn't we just do this story? You know, he started calling them the Hitler youth and 
you know, they would refuse to come to the studio and all this. I was like, oh, this is great stuff. But actually, you know, with a limited time, you know, if we'd had, if it was an Apple miniseries and we had 10 hours, then maybe, but I think we just, we just couldn't really warrant it. And so, you know, I had to kind of apologize to all the people where we didn't include their favorite song or we didn't include the favorite moment, but, you know, something had to give. All I can say is that all those songs and all those scores were definitely in there at some point, but just didn't make the final cut. Well, I'm curious, you know, because obviously there's ones like, you know, Sheena Easton, for example, you don't really talk about the Free Your Eyes Only song or Man with the Golden Gun song, but like for Bond fans, they want to hear all of this covered, but I also understand trying to weigh the demands of a general audience because ultimately Bond is popular because of the general audience. Like they're the ones who all go out to the theater. It's, you know, the diehards are in the small number of the fandom. So I'm really curious, like, when you're looking at the film now, we all know, you know, stuff that was maybe not in the movie, but, like, what was the toughest cuts, the ones that really kept you up at night? Yeah, that, I mean, that's another great question. I think, well, yeah, for me, it was, I was finding it hard to cut the John Barry stuff out because I felt, felt like that was our through line and that's what gave mm. it emotional weight for me. But I, I, I take the point that it was, yeah, it's not a John Barry documentary. I'm sure someone will make a great John Barry documentary, but that's not what we were told to make. <laughs> So there was a limit to how much, was, but I, we cut out some really lovely stuff. I, I really loved all the masterclass stuff that we had in there. So we had David Arnold take apart all of the Casino Royale um, theme and the soundtrack and, and, and bit by bit explain how, how do you create a new Bond when Bond's, Bond's whole persona has been in, in the previous iteration was uh, Pierce Brosnan where he's having fun. He's a great, you know, he has moments, obviously there's, there's some dark moments in a couple of the films, but ultimately he's someone who kind of moves on it's episodic he finishes one it's like a sitcom the next one it's like he's he's, he's doing something new whereas with um with craig you know it might, might not have evolved this it kind of evolved organically i don't think they planned in casino royale at the beginning to carry on and have the same story but that's what happened and so how do you create a score that can reflect someone who's a kind of more realistic bond who's more damaged who kills people for a living and doesn't enjoy it he, he hates it because it's horrible it's a and it, it's chipping away at his soul each time he does it. And so he create, He said, well, you can't really give Bond an emotional theme. We know what the Bond theme is. It doesn't really do emotion. So he, he created this Vesper theme, which had these two interweaving ideas in it. One is which is, is kind of Vesper, and the other one is, in his mind, was kind of Daniel coming up to kind of help her, and these two things kind of connected. It's a romantic theme. And then that's been used in, the, in subsequent films as well, even all the way up to No Time to Die. So I loved all that stuff. But again, I think we, we were getting notes back to saying, listen, you're doing a lot on Daniel. And same for when we had a whole section on Chris Cornell. It's like, look, something's got to give because otherwise you get, you've got like 60% of this film is just Daniel, which is great, but it's, you know, that's not Bond. Um, and similarly, you know, I'm trying to think of other things. I mean, one thing that Barbara said to me early on, which I loved was she was talking about why music is particularly important with, with Bond is that he's not someone who, can emote you know he conceals for a living and that's the nature of his character and his job so the music has to do all that and has to tell you what's going on and it's and it's so true and that that for me is why you know i, I love these films because they're doing the same thing that sergio leone did with ennio morricone in the good the bad and the ugly and, and all those spaghetti westerns was just that you know clint eastwood walks into a, into a room he doesn't say anything so the music is having to do everything and i think particularly that's the case with bond so we have those kind of, we and i had we had a section where we started to get into kind of Hitchcock and how music works in cinema in general, but again, just not enough space for it. We also had a, uh, another great section. I, I loved 
which I kind of worked on just by myself because I was really enjoying it was this idea of, you know, did Bond, can you argue that Bond created the music video? And then we interviewed Sheena Easton and we had loads of great Maurice Binder footage of him on set. And then we went all the way to Danny Kleinman and their amazing behind the, footage, the scenes footage of that. That was a whole section. But when we were at two hours, it was like, well, we can take out 10 minutes like that and no one's going to miss it. But it was really beautiful. And it was it was a good way of getting, getting into this idea of, you know, what what are those opening credits for? And uh, so Neil and Rob, the Bond writers, were saying they, they likened it to, you know, you come into a, a restaurant and someone, the waiter takes you over to a table and they sit you down and bring you a, a martini. That's what that opening bit is. It's like, okay, you have this, bang moment at the beginning where you have the pre-credit sequence and then now you're going to settle in and the opening opening credits and the title song are going to just ease you into the film and explain what you're going to and then you and now you're ready for the action which i really liked and uh and sheena easton was very eloquent on how you know the whole experience with maurice and, and what a genius he was and we got into a whole saw bass thing as well about how he kind of passed the baton on to maurice but again you know <laughs> and we also had a kind of sexism section where which i really liked and again it was just a timing thing was that not only is there a kind of sexism in those opening titles uh, in the old ones and that's had to evolve through the years especially with daniel Kleinman, but that there was a kind of you know apple i think particularly when they were doing it were keen to try and deal with that like, is there a way we can tackle a little bit of this idea that bonds had to evolve not only musically but also you know its portrayal of women and and so on and I scratched my head about it because obviously you say yes to everything at the beginning because, you know, you want, you want everyone to be happy. But as we were doing it, I would interview, every interview I would ask the same question, which is, like, look, is there any way to talk about sexism musically? Because that's, that's the toughest thing for me. And a couple of people, uh, Naomi Harris was one uh, who was great on this. And Anna Smith, who's a, is a great film critic in the UK, both started talking about music and saying, well, in a weird way, music is kind of like a moral compass. And so when all that questionable stuff is going on in the early films, John Barry's music is so brilliant and so romantic that you, you can't, it just gives you a kind of uh, a nod that this is okay. And so the, in a weird way, the music is kind of complicit. I mean, it has to be, because that's what it's doing. And it makes it palatable in a strange way. And so we had them talking about that. So I love that sequence. But again, it's like, you know, for all the people there, they're going to be saying, let's play the hits, man. <laughs> so <laughs> had to had to hit the cutting room floor. But it was, yeah, there was lots of, there was lots of good stuff. But, you know, it's, it's the same on every documentary, really. Right. Sure. Well, it, a couple of quick questions in a row, really. I, I, and I note that you've mentioned sort of Apple and it, it went to Amazon with the Amazon sort of deal. Was the documentary very different when it was an Apple piece, or did it was it minor adjustments when when Amazon came through? It didn't change. I mean, that's the great thing about having Barbara and Michael is that they they just shepherd the whole thing, so you're really talking to them rather than to anyone else. We got notes in from Apple, all of which were kind of fair enough, and we were started to work on them, and then the whole Amazon thing was announced, and then Barbara was it was just kind of rang and was like, no, it's going to be Amazon now because it's like that's we we have to do it that way, and 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 like, okay, great. Are we, are we changing. I hope we're not kind of changing horses in midstream or no, 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 just like, just finish it kind of thing. So yeah, luckily for us, I mean, otherwise we'd still be cutting. I think that, and, and they, they understood that we were, it was tricky even just for us to hit that deadline. So I don't think we could have ever stopped in the middle and rethought it too much. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources, whether it's research, 
equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right, as you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? It's the first part of our Christmas extravaganza. We are going to do a commentary for 1996's The Long Kiss Goodnight. Come dice some vegetables with Gina Davis and let's have a merry time. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Well, um, the other question I had, you mentioned the archives earlier and sort of being allowed access to the Bond archives. I'm sure uh, there's still stuff you didn't even find from just the lack of time. But what were some of the the, the biggest sort of revelations and, and findings you found? As, you know, did they make the finished product? But just some of the things you found whilst going through the archives that really surprised you. I mean, it wasn't... So the main thing for me was just like, how can we tell this story when so many of the people involved, the key players have passed away? So that was my main thing in the archive. And then, of course, like, are there any ways of illustrating these great anecdotes that I've heard through the years. So the starting point for me, there's um, a great book by John Burlingame called The Music of Bond. And that's great. a great primer, yeah. You just go into there, it tells you everything in much more detail than we could ever to hope to do. But then, so so I kind of knew a lot of the stories and then it's like, well, who's still around? I was, I was amazed that Monty Norman was still alive at that point. I mean, sadly he passed last year, but I was, we got to do a couple of interviews with him, the last interviews he ever did. And um, so, you know, we just went to as many people as we could but the, the great thing for me was, you know, we go, got into the Eon archives and they had all these tapes of interviews. So all those ones, the, the main thing I was concerned about was John, obviously, that, you know, would we find enough interviews with John Barry? And the first thing that turned up was all these tapes of interviews with him. We didn't use them all primarily, mainly because it was just, I didn't want to hop between too, too many different archives and just have, get him at one point in his life to be telling the stories rather than, you know, cutting to him and suddenly he's, you know, 70 and then the other one he's in, you know, he's in his 30s. But we ended up, uh, yeah, a lot of that stuff, we had a lot of behind the scenes stuff that came in, particularly for the modern era. I think since, certainly since Daniel Craig became Bond, uh, Eon have been really amazing at capturing everything that goes on behind the scenes. And I'm sure some, you know, more of that will probably come out in the future, but we had a lot of that kind of stuff. And then, you know, there's, there's bits and bobs through the years. There was, there was you know, things, that, again, the Maurice Binder thing, there's a few documentaries that have been made and a lot of great stills. But that was, that was the majority of it. It wasn't like we found, you know, I, I thought with the, with the music, is there any chance that we, anyone taped Shirley Bassey back in the day? But it just wasn't that time. It's just not, it wasn't the done thing. You have kind of press photos for the most part. And then... The, the the recording process was was more or less secret and behind closed doors. Having said that, obviously, when Nancy Sinatra did her song, then they brought in the paparazzi, which is part of the problem. And that may be one of the reasons why they don't normally do that, because it's so intrusive. The there was a lovely, you know, in terms of real moments, we like, oh, this is this is amazing. This is gonna unlock the, the film. I'd hoped we might be able to get kind of tracks, uh, bits of um, you know, audio maybe from the recordings where you might hear the run up to Goldfinger, and we didn't find it for Goldfinger, but we did find it from from Russia with Love. And there's an, we had a whole section on Matt Monroe at one point, and 
it was really lovely because for people who don't know, I mean, he was one of the great crooners of all time. He was admired by all the Rat Pack. And he's a, this, this, he has this incredible singing voice. But he was also a kind of three packs of cigarettes a day guy. He used to drink a bottle of whiskey by lunch, I think. Anyway, from, from recollection, that was his, his, his reputation. He was a bus driver who just had this incredible voice. So hearing they had, they, we had some audio tapes of him recording from Russia with Love. And you can hear John Barry doing it. And one take, the orchestra screw up. And then the next take, he gets to, he's just about to hit that high note. And he's suddenly him going, <laughs> and coughing his guts. So I'm going to need another one, John, you know, which was lovely and really suddenly breaks the whole thing apart. But, you know, that section again was one of those bits where it's like, well, you know, we can take it out and people probably won't miss it. They're definitely going to miss Goldfinger but they won't miss from Russia with love. Sadly. We had, so at the end, we put that song in, on the end credits because it's, it's such a good one. But I, I, um, yeah, that was the kind of stuff that, that we found along the way. It's interesting because, you know, you're always looking for those moments of things that people will never have heard before, but actually if it needs so much setting up that it's going to really eat into your running time, it's not always possible. But I was so happy when we found that. And then it was, I was still trying to squeeze it into the film about a week before we finished, but it's just, there was no way. Now you mentioned um, that uh, a lot of the people that worked in Bond music have passed away in, you know, over the many years. I would love to know though, if there was anyone still living that you tried to get as an inter interview subject, but you know, weren't able to. Yeah, well, we, we asked everyone as a matter of course so every single person so any anyone um you know you can imagine that we that the, from all the singers to all the collaborators um in some cases you know covid got in the way a little bit so barbara at one point you know i had vaguely thought about it but barbara at one point was like you're gonna you're gonna do the other casino royale you're gonna do like you know i i assumed that was out of bounds but i was going to ask the question and she was like oh no you should do it so we set up an interview with Bert backrack we we're going to go to his house and then lockdown happened and completely reasonably he i think his team were like look he's he's getting old now i don't think it's a good idea to have a bunch of guys come over from the uk and potentially spread covid around so that fell apart at the last minute there were a few things like that and then some people i mean obviously this is more personal for them so i you know, i'm not gonna say who it is but there's a couple of people who are quite ill uh of people who've, who've worked on bond in the past so they you know again they weren't really able to do it and some people just it's a scheduling thing. A few people who said yes, and they kept on saying yes, and then we would book the tickets, and then it wouldn't happen. You know, I think we were due to go and interview Adele, and then there was the whole thing with her her live tour. The, the gig didn't happen, and I think she had bigger stuff going on. Similarly with Paul McCartney, I think we booked that in about 10 times and it didn't happen, you know. So, and that's happened on every single film or documentary I've ever done. There's always one person who, or two people who slip the net, and I... It, it's difficult because obviously as a filmmaker, you're desperate to, to speak to them, but also you have to have a kind of sense of humility about it in some, in some way, because, you know, I think artists, the, the guys who, who do bond and, you know, they're, they're, it's a, it's like a, it's a kind of who's who list of the greatest artists of the 20th and 21st century. So, you know, if you don't get them, that's fair enough. They've got other stuff going on in their lives. Uh, but yeah, we asked everyone. And as far as other people, I'm trying to think, yeah, some people, we just, you know, we had a few things booked in. And as it got closer to the, the end of the process, I was like, look, I don't want to waste anyone's time. I don't want to just like interview people for the sake of interviewing them. So there were a few people who had been either composers and it didn't work out on the first trip and then on the second trip. And I was like, look, I, I, what the worst thing is going to be if we travel to LA 
spend all this money to go and interview someone and they're not even in the finished film so when and then it was such a scramble to finish it so yeah there's certain people that i i would love to have interviewed and it was more a scheduling thing or it was a covid thing or it was a money thing just we couldn't keep on crossing the atlantic every couple of weeks but yeah that was that's tough because even i mean we had like a decent budget but then on the other hand we had to pay for all the music and you have to pay for there's so many things where the, the budget just disappears when you when you least expect it at the beginning everything's possible and by the end you're like literally just calling in favors right left and center the one i was the most curious about was hearing from eric sarah that this is the Bond nerd in me would have loved to have heard because that score for Goldeneye was so experimental at the time and I think still polarizing. So the general mainstream probably is not as interested in Eric Serra insights, but that was the one for me. I was like, oh, would have loved that. I would have loved that too. We did, we did speak to, you know, we spoke to his team. He was up for doing an interview. He was over in, over in Paris. Again, towards the end of the process, we were like, well, look, Jarvis Cocker did a cover of uh, All Time High. And maybe we can go over there and see if we could get him at the same time as maybe getting, you know, so like on each trip, we kind of had to justify it. If you're getting a film crew, you can't really do one person at a time. And then, yeah, I, you know, Barbara was keen to have him in as well. You know, I think they were very keen for us not just to do the, you know, cause I, I, I actually really love that score, but it was very controversial. And I think, and I love his music in general. I mean, he's, he's a genius. So I, I was, I've used the Leon score about a million times as temp music on, on my stuff, you know, but I, yeah, it was just tricky. It was one of those things where, so the, the conversation you have all the time with John, uh, the producer and his team is just like, look, of course, go and shoot whatever you want. But if you're going to go and shoot Eric, that means you can't then go and uh, do the trip and go and do Duran Duran. So like, which is more of you're like, okay, fine. Well, okay, well, let's, let's do Duran Duran. And then I could come back and maybe there'll be more money at the end. So it was yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one, but it's, um, you know, I think there's a reason why you have deadlines and there's a reason why uh, directors aren't in charge of the budget, you know, and and, uh, and it's a reason why I think people get dragged, you know, directors traditionally, they, you know, everyone always says you don't finish a film, you abandon it because you, you get dragged kicking and screaming away from the edit. You're still thinking, oh, I still things I want to try out. So yeah, it's a, it's a compromise. But in, in this case, it was... I, we got to a point towards the end where it was like anyone else we start interviewing now is probably not going to end up in the film. And so, yeah, a few things fell aside, but it was, yeah, I, I regret it just for the purely just for the fact that I would love to go and hang out with those people and pick their brains. There was, uh, you kind of half answered my next question, so I'll probably jump into another one as well. But it, it, it's nice to hear that Casino Royale 67 could have got some love. And I, I assume Never Say Never Again was also in, in discussion at some point as well. Yeah, I mean they're great. I, I think great scores. I mean, like you know, Burt Bacharach is is the greatest of all time, and the idea of going to hang out with him would, would have been amazing. I, one of the things I was most excited about. On the other hand, I didn't really want to kill him, so I did have that part. <laughs> I don't. I don't be the best. Fair. Fair. I don't want to have to put the end, but you know, no one died in the making of this film apart from Burt Bacharach. So I, you know, and then then we couldn't justify fly, flying over just for him, especially as we started to realize, you know, you get at the beginning, you feel like. Yeah, of course, we'll squeeze everything in. And as you get closer and closer to a, to the running time, you're like, oh, God, there's no, something's got to give. The same thing, you know, for for, for everyone from, um, uh, like, when, you know, when you're interviewing, I'm trying to think now who who we spoke to. We spoke to a lot of graphic designers at one point as well, people who give us an idea of how Maurice worked and how Daniel worked. And we spoke to Daniel as well. We had all these great people. And then at a certain point, you're like, God, we just spent a lot of money and time talking to all these people, which was fascinating for me, but never made the, the cut. So you, you kind of have to be sensible. But um, yeah, no, I would have I, I would have loved that. And 
the Casino Royale score is, you know, I think it's kind of a, when you watch the film, it's a bit of a kind of guilty pleasure. It's not, it's definitely, it's not a patch on, on the second Casino Royale, but the music is great. I, I absolutely. And I, and I, I have a follow-up question I want to ask about graphics. I'll get to that in a second because I've got a, one more question I think I need to ask. And I don't want to make this like a whistle-stop tour of, hey, you didn't include this or you know, what happened there? So, so I suppose in a different angle, one thing I really love about the documentary is you include nods to Amy Winehouse and Radiohead, both being sort of, I would call, near misses. Was there any other near misses that you wanted to dive into that you found through the archives or just sort of through, uh, you know, popular media knowing they almost did it and you wanted to explore? Yeah, we had, well, we had a whole section, not a whole section, but a kind of a two minute section on the Johnny Cash uh, Thunderball, which was great. And people were really excited about. Then we went to the, we couldn't clear it with the estate. Then a friend of mine as a producer managed to get us in contact with the estate. They cleared it. Then they wouldn't, you know, the, the money was, it was too too much money. And sadly, because by the end of the process, it was a complete scramble to try and clear all this music before the deadline. And our music supervisors who are amazing came back and said, look, we just don't think we can do it in the time. And they don't, you know, they, fair enough. They've just said no to the money and we can't, make an exception for them and i wish I, I was by that stage i'd gone off to go and shoot some stuff with coldplay and i i was kind of like well you know when somebody lives and actually i dashed i think when i talked back to the, my friend the producer he was like oh you know i could have spoken to the archive and talked to the family and maybe so there was a section on that so johnny cash is great and i yeah it's, it's a it's a beautiful tune so as a massive johnny cash fan i i suggest people go and search that out on youtube if they haven't heard it uh, we had a section just before that on Frank Sinatra and how Frank Sinatra came so close to initially doing um, You Only Live Twice and then doing Moonraker and I was friends with Cubby. I got to meet and that was another great moment was to get to meet and spend time with Nancy Sinatra, who's incredible. And she talked a, a bit about how she and Barbara grew up together and about that relationship. And that was lovely. So that was another, that whole thing kind of created one big section about all the songs that were near misses or didn't happen for any reason. And that's where we were going to put in Casino Royale and Never Say Never Again as these kind of films, the songs that 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 were Bond songs, but not Bond songs. And, you know, the because the song really in Casino Royale is Look of Love, which is one of the greatest songs of all time. So all that stuff, uh, but, it, you know, it just didn't happen. And similarly, I I just felt like you could kind of dip into the songs there that were influenced by Bond. And, and John Burlingame does a great, has a great section where he says, look, once John Barry creates that Bond template, it's almost impossible for later um, uh, composers, whether as, as for the songs or but mostly for the scores, to create music that doesn't sound like Bond because that's what spies sound like. And so there's a whole kind, there's a raft of things, everything up to Mission Impossible and so on, that all these, and uh, Our Man Flint, where it's music that is kind of Bond, really, but it can't be Bond, you know. And then, of course, you've got when John even does it himself, where he'll go off on a different tangent and creates other music, like you know, uh, uh, for Harry Palmer and so on. So there's, so we had to se- started to do a section on that, and I kind of abandoned it because I was like, this is, yeah, it's never going to be in the film. Well, the uh, the spy movie fan in me, which is what we talk about here every week on Spy Hearts, is uh, slightly gutted by losing that. But that's that's I completely understand the ninety minute thing there. I want to move us off of the near misses and the what could have beens and talk about what we've got and the wonderful documentary that it is. Um, one thing that jumped out to me is 
the graphical presentation, which you wouldn't think it would be an important part of it, but because it, it's about sound. But there's, um, I think, literally on the credits, the animator was Walter Ventura. If that's a company or a person, I don't know. I'm sorry. But I think the graphics are fantastic in this film. And so what went into working on those? Oh, thank you. Well, yeah. So the, the team is, uh, there's a very good friend of mine, Martin Apton, and his team are called The Brewery. And um, they are... Yeah, they they based in London, just behind Leicester Square, and they I met them on I think the second project I ever did as a, a feature film, and, and we worked on everything ever since on music videos, on documentaries, on films, everything, and they're just like it's a it's Mark and a team of very dedicated, lovely people who have this place in Leicester Square. It's a very small boutique place, and they work on everything from you know car ads to everything else. But what I love about Mark is he's just so can do. I have worked with big you know, visual effects houses, and obviously they're amazing. But what I love about Mark is he's kind of like a guerrilla filmmaker where he would just make things happen. So when we've been filming in the middle of a field and I've had an idea and gone, I actually, I think we could shoot on, on that film Ashes. This could be the ferry scene and we could just film these three guys and let's, we hold up a wonky bit of green screen and say, can you just paint a ferry underneath them? He just makes it happen somehow, you know? And the same thing with Bond. We brainstormed, you know, like like all film nerds he's obsessed with bond and so he watched all the films back to back before i'd even had a chance to do it and bought all the soundtracks and bought all the bond graphical books and all that kind of stuff and then we brainstormed for a bit and i my initial take on the on the thing was look, i don't know if the archive is going to be there you know i have no idea what eon are going to give us or what we can find ourselves but i'm sure there's going to be great anecdotes already from reading john Burlingame's book there's all the Things like, you know, about when uh, uh, the, the great story that Michael Caine tell, tells about how he was the first person ever to hear Goldfinger. And I really want to get into the swinging 60s and I want to get into how the world of musicals was where Bond started with everyone from Lionel Bart uh, to all these, these these fantastic writers. That kind of created the songs because that's that's what, you know, makes it it's an obvious starting point. Um, how are we going to do it? Well, Let's look at kind of graphical things. Maybe we steal the silhouette idea from the beginning of Casino Royale and you'll use that to illustrate it. And, and then at the end, if we're going to have our own song, you know, when we were thinking of having a song evolve through the film, then at the end, we'll have our own opening credits, but they'll be for this new song. And so, so we, we threw out all these different ideas. They started experimenting with some of this stuff and it was looking really good. But then the question was, well, look, if we're, the archive actually is good and rather than just being too clever and having tons of silhouettes and creating silhouettes of, of you know, uh, Michael Caine. Look, if we've got footage from his films where you can actually see the real Michael Caine doing it, then having a silhouette with kind of traditional, you know, the, the big glasses is kind of less interesting in a way. So maybe we're just being too clever. So we, we, then we got to a point where I was like, look, let's just, we'll do everything we can in the edit and then we'll bring it back to you and, and you will start throwing things, ideas back and forth. And we were lucky that um, our assembly editor, Sam, uh, is, is amazing with graphics as well. So he, he started playing around with stuff and actually got to a level where it was so sophisticated. I was like, well, to be honest, you should go and sit in with Mark and you guys just work together. So he would do stuff, then Mark would use it, then Mark would do something different for another section. And it was really just those guys brainstorming, just trying to find the most interesting visual ways of communicating this. Because the one thing I had was like, well, it shouldn't, you know, I think with graphics, they can't be distracting obviously, but if they can help you listen to the music, you know, if you see, most people don't understand precisely musical notation, but you can understand if a note's going up or coming down. So I was like, just to help people pick themes out and ideas out, if we could take the Dr. No dots from 
which obviously been used in No Time to Die and, and were used, uh, you know, at the very beginning of the of the series. If we can use those as musical notation and use the color of those and use that as a way of also, and then Mike, and Mark was like, great, well, why don't I use those as transitional devices? So instead of just wiping or cutting, we use the dots as a way in and out of scenes and, and so on. So it just becomes a great collaboration. And for me, it's like the one thing I did promise to Apple when it was Apple at the beginning and to Barbara is that, look, you know, what we don't want is something that's going to send people to sleep. Bond films are entertaining. They're visually stunning. So the, the documentary should be entertaining and should be should be impactful. And the, the visuals should be telling the story as well, rather than just, you know, we didn't want to just make a kind of a documentary as great as some of those documentaries uh, are about John Barry and, and so on from the past that we were looking and, and using as a resource, they can sometimes be a bit pedestrian visually. And so that was the one thing I said, look, it should be, it should, you should be telling a, an exciting story. We shouldn't just be, you know, people shouldn't be feeling like they're twiddling their thumbs at any point. I, I remember seeing the, um, the poster artwork coming out of the screening at the BFI, you had it all plastered around. And I've, I, I'm, I'm deeply sad that there wasn't any for sale in the shop. I'm, I'm still trying to track one of those down because that poster is wonderful. I can't find them anywhere. Oh, really? I wonder, well, I'll see if we can, in the edit suite, we've got any. Oh, they sent us a, a few. If the edit team have all taken them, I'll see if, see if I can rustle something up. We must have one. Not at all. That's very kind of you. No, it's it's beautiful. Like just the incorporation of like a vinyl record with the the sort of yeah the, the gun barrel. It, wonderful work. Wonderful. Yeah, work. they did a great job. That was um, was I'm gonna get I'm gonna mess this up now. I was gonna say it was Empire Design. I think it was Empire Design. But yeah, the the other lovely thing about that is I I was the process at the end when they start sending you all the different ideas, and you get the kind of mood boards. I I love all that side of things. You know, we had the same thing on the. On the Coldplay one, they went out to this company. I think everyone got so excited about it. Every single designer that ever worked with sent over about five different posters. So we had about 100 posters for the for the final thing. And again, I, I suppose it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's su such a subjective taste because all the ones I picked, no one else likes. <laughs> so I've obviously got, <laughs> I've either got terrible taste or very niche taste. But yeah, there's some great ones for this as well. So have you been pleased with the reception you've gotten from the documentary? Because it's one thing to sit in the, you know, the room and see it in a theater, but obviously online people have been talking about it. And, you know, even like the Eon um, people, you know, themselves as well. What has been your take on the reception? Yeah, it's been it's been wonderful. It's been really lovely. I mean, I you know, you don't know when you're working on something. Obviously, you know, people love Bond. So there is always that inbuilt kind of uh, safety net underneath, which is just like, look, even if it was terrible, we know that the films and the music are great. So people are going to tune in anyway. So there is that that side of things. But yeah, I think the response has been great. And I think, I, I hope people understand that, you know, it can never hope, you know, there's no way we could ever satisfy everyone's need for like complete detail on everything. So it really had to be a kind of taster. I think some of my ideas of kind of pushing it too far in the John Barry direction or, going off and writing a new Bond song, you know, actually I imagine maybe they would have, they, they might have possibly been kind of more um, experimental. So in that sense, interesting, but actually I think might have pissed off a lot of fans. <laughs> so maybe, <laughs> maybe it was good that we didn't go in that direction. And I, I, yeah, I, I think it's been great. I, my, in terms of going back, you know, there was nothing in it where there was not a no point where we were, I was, I was really happy that, you know, for example, when I, I wanted to put in Radiohead and Amy and, when I started talking to to Barbara and Michael about that in the interviews, they didn't push back on anything. You know, they were very encouraging. And, and similarly for the the sequences, like the sequence that finishes the film, where we get into a, a relative amount of nerdy detail with Hans and with Steve and with everyone. 
you know, which I, I love as a music fan, but it's not necessary to everyone's taste. And I love the fact they supported us on that and encouraged us in, in that direction. So no, it was, it, that was, that was great. So I'm really happy. And I, I think, you know, social media gets a lot of stick, but the great thing for me is you do get to interact with people and you see if people like it and generally they've been been really super supportive so i yeah i hope we've done it justice you know you can never you can only do what you can do in 90 minutes but i feel like as a fan myself i hope i'm, I'm glad people have enjoyed it and um I, I i from everyone i've spoken to online it, it's wonderful and a wonderful celebration of 60 years of james bond so you you i think you've really helped you know that transition year that big year of 60 years of bond what's your favorite moment from the documentary looking back on it now oh from the actual film that's a good question. I mean, I've got a lot of favorite bits. I think the, I would say, I would say that the, the moment that I, that I really, really enjoyed, uh, again, this is just purely from being a music nerd, was getting to sit in a room with, um, with David and with Hans and with Steve and people at that, of that caliber and be able to just ask some stupid, questions you know kind of layman's questions it was like well look i feel very moved by this music i did like, I, I had a kind of classical music background and upbringing i play music and, and play instruments and stuff but so i'm not a complete idiot but i but, but I, you know like how would you even approach that and how does the process work mm. and you know obviously i'm a film director so i i know the, the the normal procedure but you know how does it work on a bond film and everything's so much bigger and more pressured and and who gets to call the shots doing that kind of thing and so so when I, um, the first person we met was Kerry Fukunaga and he gave us a great interview. And he, at one point I just said, look, you know, how does it, how does it work? Like that final sequence, which is, is key to the whole Craig era in the end. And, uh, but is very, very difficult to pull off and it was controversial and some people didn't like it conceptually, but I don't think many people out there can deny how brilliantly it was put together. You know, you might, you might say it was the wrong move with the Bond character. Personally, I thought, I thought it was really gutsy and was really as a brave thing to do. But I, but the way that the music lifts it, as um, as Daniel said, was was amazing. So then, so we, so he, I just like, how did that come about? And then he told us that idea of you know that that he was there with Hans and the way that Hans work is works is so kind of spontaneous that he he was literally he said, look, I think this needs to sound like a requiem. This is this is what this whole section is. And as he was walking out the door Hans said well like this and began writing kind of playing it in real time using elements that Steve Mazzaro had also worked with Hans and he had, he had kind of brought together so so I, I was like oh that's great that feels like a real moment where you're in the room with them and so you know luckily for me a week later I was in a room with Hans and so I could literally get him to talk back to Kerry in the film and a week after that I was floating float, you know, I flew over to go meet Steve and then you know a week after that I was meeting Daniel so you had a chance to get all these people to speak to each other in a way that they normally don't. I mean, that's the, that's the thing about musicians. They don't, they tend to be more instinctive and they, they'll just do things. Whereas actually a lot of the time I was getting to ask them and they were having to think about things, think them through and kind of uh, verbalize them for the first time. And then again, it's funny with someone like Daniel and the same thing with Rami Malek and Naomi Harris and so on. I thought like, I don't want to interview them anyway. They might say they don't have anything to say about the subject, but what I loved was that, you know, in that classic kind of self-deprecating way, they all start off again. Listen, I have no idea why you want to talk to me because I don't know anything about music. And then went on to become to, to give us these amazingly eloquent, insightful <laughs> answers about what it is that the music does and how important it was, for example, for Daniel to have the uh, you know we have all the time in the world because it's there in the script and then it becomes this key theme. And so I so I 
yeah, that moment towards the end where you get to hear how, just as John Barry had conceived it, this is kind of the 21st century version where you have not only the, the singer quoting motifs from her, her song, but she actually sings in it. And then you have, you're quoting John Barry, you're quoting Billy, and then you're quoting, and then you're creating a kind of this, this hybrid of all these elements. And then you have to update the Bond theme to make it emotional in a way that has been difficult in the past. But if, you, if you're a genius like Hans and Steve, then you can do it. So that, that was one of the bits that I got excited about. And it's funny because, I, you know, something that I cut together at two in the morning the night before we met in a moment of utter panic, thinking that Barbara and Michael are coming in and we'll probably all get fired in the morning and that they liked. And then actually it was like, well, if they like it that much, let's use it as the end of the film. Maybe that's a, a good out. So it was, um, yeah, I think that's probably my favourite bit. But having said that, you know, when we found that footage of, uh, of Michael Caine talking eloquently about his friend John Barry and hearing about how he was the first person to hear the music for Goldfinger and it kept him up all night. I was like, I'm, I'm so happy that the swinging 60s are exactly as the way that I thought they would be or I hope they would be. <laughs> then of course, you know, John Barry had Michael Caine sleeping on his on his sofa because Michael Caine got kicked out of his own flat for womanizing. I think it's just great. I'm, I'm so glad it was as cool as I thought it was. <laughs> Um, and I suppose then, sort of stepping away from the documentary now, I, I suppose I have to ask you on sort of behalf of Bond fans everywhere, what's your favourite Bond song? Yeah, I mean, that's the $60 million question, isn't it? I think, and again, it would change probably depending on what day you ask me or what hour of the day you ask me, because they all mean something different to me. And they represent different eras of my life because, you know, some I wasn't around for, but I grew up with and some meant something to me because I was discovering them by myself, you know, without my parents. And then obviously as the, as the series has evolved, they've come to mean different things to me at different chapters in my life. And the fact that my kids grew up with the music for no time to die and sing that, you know, because Billie Eilish means something to them now, if that gives it an added level of level of meaning. I think that's what music does so brilliantly is that, you know, it kind of exists outside the, the films and it has its own meaning. And the idea, you know, John Burlingame, walk down the aisle to uh, we have all, all the time in the world so now for him not only is it a, a song that has a kind of tragic element it also has a joyful element and of course it was something that Louis Armstrong sang at the end of his life so it has that and obviously it's attached to now two tragic endings to two different films Bond films so um yeah I, I for me if I had to just go purely on what I think is like the, the greatest of all of them I would say it's probably for me it's we have all the time in the world it has the most resonance Having said that, you know, my first favorite in terms of one that I discovered and meant something to me is the, is the AHA Living Daylights, which is funny. Again, when you make a film like this, you meet everyone. And I think that's one of the ones that gets less love amongst fans. But I, but I, I really enjoy. And, um, and then I suppose, yeah, I, I, it's funny how you reassess songs. I, lo I love the David Arnold's Chris Cornell song. But when... Um, at the Albert Hall the other day when the other night when uh, David sang it because obviously Chris is no longer sadly around to sing it and you know I grew up as a massive Soundgarden fan and Chris Cornell fan it had so much poignancy which is odd to say for such a kind of raucous in your face rock song but it suddenly had this other level of emotion to it which I'd never ascribed to it uh, before so yeah I love all those songs and I also I, you know I'm a massive Jack White White Stripes fan and so, yeah, Another Way to Die, again, was one of the controversial ones for some reason. But I, that's one that we play a lot in the edit suite. And it's just, it's a great song in its own right. But, you know, they're all great songs in their right. And even some of the ones that people start giving a bit of flack in our film, 
they're still other people's favorites, you know. An all-time high is is um one of my best friends. She is like she was like, I hope you're doing an all-time high section because it's her favorite song. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a it's a softer song than people have been used to for Bond, but it's it's a fantastic. You know, it's John Barry. How can how can it be bad? It's it's one I find myself singing. To be fair, all-time high gets I, I I'll hum it quite a lot. But I I'll just speak to your point about the um the Royal Albert Hall concert i was there as well and and i'm also a huge chris cornell soundgarden temple of the dog fan and just hearing david arnold give sort of a heartbreaking yet also really loving rendition of the song was quite i mean i'll just say my allergies were playing up by the end <laughs> exactly exactly you know and the fact that you have shirley bassey just steps out and she before she sang a note the entire room the entire hall is on its feet i mean it, it was it was it's funny because obviously I was excited to go, but then I was like, well, you know, I know these songs, you know, it's gonna be a fun night. But actually it was very it was surprisingly emotional and and when those scores were played, it's very beautiful and, and uh, you know, all the different it's funny, I suddenly realized at the end uh, and I was thinking, well, are they gonna do No Time to Die for an Encore? That that was the one of the few songs they didn't play, but it was they were re- yeah, it was really it was really wonderful. And and again, so those songs are so versatile that people can sing them in different ways. Which again is like all the different interpretations I love. So I, it just gives the Bond film. I think it's, it's not that you know the songs. Obviously, the people love the Bond films for a lot of different reasons. But I don't know whether it would have survived. The series would have survived for sixty years without those iconic scores and those iconic songs. It's what makes Bond Bond. I think. And you know, you do have another bit of a Bond connection. I feel like we would be remiss not to mention. I was just curious about how you got attached to the Fleming miniseries. Right. Uh, well, again, I mean, I was a, I was a massive Bond fan. I'd read, I hadn't read all the books. I have now for this. I, I went back and watched all the films and read all the books finally. But the I'd read a few. My dad, I think, had a copy of Casino Royale at home and Diamonds Forever and a couple of those. So, I'd, so I, I, you know, I, and I knew a bit about Ian Fleming, but not that much. We'd been working on this project uh, called GB84, which was a, a book about a kind of thriller about the minor strike. And we'd been working on it for about s- seven years or something like that. and we thought we were getting to a point where we were close to making it. Um, I'm not going to mention the broadcaster, but it was because I want to work with them again. But it was we were we <laughs> thought we were getting close, and then suddenly it was like, oh no, they're not really interested anymore. And I suddenly just found my. I mean, this happens, but I found myself suddenly without this this job that we thought we were doing, and we would be the next two years of our lives. Um, and so, uh, so I just ran my agent and uh, normally, not not always, but often the films that I've worked on are self-generated or they come through my connections, but sometimes they come through my agent. And I just rang her and said, listen, I, I'm out of work now. I thought we were going into this thing and, and I need something. And so she just sent me the, the scripts and one of her uh, writers was had, had written this thing and worked for a long time on it. And originally it was going to be done with Benedict Cumberbatch as a film. And then, and then uh, I think Sky Atlantic came on board and they said, look, we want Dominic Cooper for this and we want to shoot it. And Dominic Cooper was only available, say, in, in January and February, well, beginning January and February. He had this window of like two months or three months when he was available to shoot. And then he was going off onto some massive film, onto War of, War of, uh, uh, World of Warcraft. And so he wasn't going to be available for another year. And so it's like, look, you can shoot with him or you don't shoot, but these scripts are not quite ready because Sky Atlantic want to keep working on them. Do you just hit the ground running? And, and, um, and so I think I went in on Monday and I said, look, this is why I would do it. Because I think even though the scripts were great, the concept, the concept of it was, I was like, look, I'm a Bond fan. 
I don't know that much about Ian Fleming. Obviously, I did due diligence the night before and went online and read up on him. But he said, I was going into it cold. And I was like, the scripts are really fun. The pitch was that Ian Fleming, it was a little bit tongue in cheek. It was more kind of Piers Brosnan than Sean Connery. Right. But the idea really was um, Ian Fleming was, it was almost like an origin story for Bond. So it was kind of like, you know, like you would have a superhero film, like Ian, an, an origin story for the writer of Bond. So it starts off with Ian Fleming and Ian Fleming is this kind of playboy who has been fired from every single job that his, his family connections have ever got him. And then the war happens and it's the making of him because he becomes a spy, but he becomes a, a deskbound spy and he's desperate to be James Bond. But the, his, his curse is that he never will, but he'll end up creating James Bond and writing about him. So he comes close to all these things, but he never actually comes. But each of these, these encounters informs the, the writer he's going to be. And so that was the take on it. And Dominic, I knew I'd met before. He was like, a, he's just socially, he's just a lovely guy. And so we met, we're like, let's just go for it. And we'll just, we'll, we'll make it happen somewhere. So, um, and because it's tongue in cheek, we got to kind of create these Bond-like sequences, not on a Bond budget. You know, we'd be shooting, I think on a Bond film, they shoot, you know, action sequences over weeks and months and they would shoot a sex scene over a weekend. You know, there's like, we would be shooting like a sex scene in half an hour in the morning, then crossing, you know, we're shooting in Budapest, then crossing town to go and blow up a tank and then running, but you know, it was all like that. But it was, it was a lot of fun. And it was, it, you know, it was just one of those things where I, I enjoy, it was almost like doing a kind of low budget film with a decent budget because we just had to run around, but we just, we were trying to make a Bond film on, a, on an indie film budget. Having said that, you know, we had tanks and big uh, explosions and, uh, you know, we had great casts and it was, but it was one, one of those nuts uh, moments where, you know, I was talking to my, my wife, my girlfriend at the time, and I went in on Monday just to say, look, oh, there's this potential job coming up. On the Friday, I left for Budapest. I don't think I came back for six months. <laughs> so part of that, which was amazing, pre-kids. And then we had our first daughter just after that. And I think that's when slowing down and doing documentaries was was nice. I think I'm, we're hopefully doing a drama next. And so I'm excited to go back into that because bar the odd bit of uh, filming here and there, I've we've mostly been doing documentaries. We've done music videos and we've done Red Nose Day stuff, you know, and I've worked with these, with Vic and Bob, these comedians in the UK who, who I grew up loving and they're like my, they're legends who I, I, I basically worship. And so I got to do that a couple of times, but, but yeah, going back to dramas is, is exciting. But Fleming was, was amazing. It was real. Yeah. And they kind of, because we were in Budapest, they just didn't to get on with it. And we came back we went off and, and shot a bunch of stuff and came back and trying to piece it together with it. But it was, it was really fun. It's probably the closest I get to making an actual Bond film. I never say never. True. But it's also, it's <laughs> nice. I mean, I think the great thing about Bond is that it, as it evolves through the times, you know, who knows who the next Bond is going to be. We've all got suggestions, but I, you know, they haven't got that far in the process yet by the sounds of things, but maybe it needs to be a woman director. Maybe it needs to be a black Bond, all these things. You know, I think the, the, I think, white middle-class directors have had a fair shot and maybe it's time for someone else to do it. <laughs> but, you know, look, if, if Barbara rings tomorrow and asks me to do the next Bond film, I'm, I'm definitely not going to say no. But I, I think it's <laughs> what's exciting is that they're obviously thinking about just doing something different. I think the only tiny um, glimmer that they've, uh, you know, kind of tiny hint that they've given about the future is they want to do something different and shake it up in the same way they did with Daniel, which is great. It's what they should do. So, um, and that's what's going to keep the franchise alive, I guess. Totally. 
Well, it's um, it, it's interesting, uh, just as sort of the story of this podcast. I didn't think we would have the definitive story of the Fleming TV show because we've also had the one of the, the writers, Don McPherson, on the show like right. over a year or so ago. Um, How funny! I didn't think this would happen. Yeah, oh, world, I love because he did the Avengers from yes. 1998. So that's how we got on the show. But, that's yeah. so funny. Oh, Don's amazing. He lives over in Islington. I, I actually I need to look him up because I haven't seen him for a while. But he's a he's a wonderful person. Mm-hmm. Him and Amory, his, his wife. I mean, they're just. Yeah, they're very, very lovely people. I mean, he, he, because so basically, to cut long story short, he came on board that um, very last minute. And I'd met him because Michael Winterbottom was doing a film called Goal, which Don came on board to come and write. I was editing. And then the whole thing fell apart. And that's, it was one night, drunken night, just before we went out to go and shoot Goal, that I pitched Road to Guantanamo to Michael. Michael said, oh, no, let's do it together. So I met Don on that. And then that film fell apart. And he'd mostly had, he had a huge success being a ghostwriter, being one of those kind of script doctors who, you know, obviously get paid a lot of money and they're essential to the way that Hollywood works, but don't get much credit. So he was chumping the bit and he almost got to do gold and that fell apart. And then I got to work with him with Fleming and he's, he's so talented. He's so brilliant, but he hasn't, you know, his name has not been put on enough things. And so to do Fleming, he was, it was just fantastic. I was just going to sit over with him. We'd brainstorm and he'd be sitting there bashing out things. And he's very, he has the kind of energy and, inventiveness of someone who's just starting out even though he's you know he's very experienced so yeah that was a real joy working with him and it has a genuine love for just from our chat anyway and our emails we've exchanged uh, of just spy movies and spy stories and fleming and and the avengers tv shows all the stuff he's involved with um a couple of quick questions before we let you go matt uh it's been you know i know it's been a long chat we've done an hour and a half on this firstly i want to know what you mentioned it briefly but what are you working on at the moment what have you got on the horizon well, um, I so as we were doing these, you know, we've been working on various stuff in documentaries, and uh, we I had a, an amazing experience working with James Gay Reese. Um, so we did Supersonic with with him and Asif Kapadia, and then we did uh, The Kings with him and Paul Martin, and they came and pitched us a few projects. There's one project that I'm, I'm I can't I, it's tricky to talk about all these things because they they haven't happened yet and they might not happen, I guess. But I hope they're looking positive. Anyway, we've got one project with him, which is really exciting. I, having said, I'm never going to do any more music documentaries. Then I always get another opportunity. And then so Sound of 007 was like, oh, OK, I'll do one more. But that's it. I'm not going to do any more. And then I've, I got pitched another really great one by one of my favorite bands. I was like, oh, OK, so that's hovering as well. It's trying to land planes. It, you know, I'm very lucky now to be at a stage where, you know, you're, you're more, in more in demand than you're able to kind of fulfill. And then... But I'd kind of said to myself that I think at least around the time of Bond, I, I want to move back into drama again, if my kids and my wife don't mind. <laughs> it, is, it is a big, big ask. I mean, it's, it, you know, I think it's five or six weeks when you end up being very unavailable. So I don't want to do it too often, but, I, but yeah, I've kind of missed it. And um, so we have one. So we've got various different things. I've got a, a project with working title, uh, which was originally something, a film that I wrote with Jack Thorne. Um, which is, again, I can't talk too much about, but it's a kind of, um, it's a ghost story. And they came back to me uh, a couple of years ago and said, oh, actually, we don't want to do it as a feature, we want to do it as TV. So me and a, a friend of mine is a writer-director, uh, Iran Creevy, who did Welcome to the Punch and Shifty. He's one of my best mates. We've now rewritten it as a, as a TV show. So they're now going off and looking at what we've done and thinking about that. So hope, hopefully that, but that won't be the next thing. Then we got approached by um, another couple of producers who have this amazing murder mystery, which is what I, I think we're doing next. And it's, it's incredibly exciting. But then, you know, that's, 
that would be the next thing. But then we've also got um, Andrew Eaton, my, Michael Winterbottom's uh, producer uh, earlier, and, and now he produces by himself. He has a project that he wants to do with me, and, and he was originally going to do GB84. That was his his project. So these things come round, and I one thing I can say is that it nearly is nearly always completely impossible to predict because I, I certainly didn't think we were going to be doing Sound of 007 when we did it because we had two other projects that were supposed to be happening before. Um, one of which is still hopefully happening. So there's, yeah, it's very difficult to know. And then, and then on top of that, we've got um, I've, I've optioned a series of children's books that I want to turn into a into a couple of films. If we again, if we can, if we make them. So yeah, hopefully um, leaning more on dramas in the future. But I I love documentaries and I, and I love music videos and I love comedy when I've been lucky enough to go off and with Vic and Bob and so on. So. Yeah, things turn up all the time. I'm, I, again, I'm I'm lucky enough that the phone rings relatively often. Like last week, I was in the middle of doing prep on this film, so I couldn't do it. But you know, children in need rang asking me to go and shoot some stuff for them. So you never really know what what the next thing is going to be. And there've been a few projects that it's probably not fair to talk about, but where either it didn't work out timing wise, or someone else has come in and you end up not getting the job after working on it. So there've been a few of those through the years. Um, well, that's just the nature of, of you know working in a in any business, freelance business. So who knows? Maybe it could, could not be any of those things. It could, could the phone could ring next week, and it turns out they found someone much better to do the job. So um, yeah, you don't can't really. Someone was saying to me yesterday, you can't. Um, a film's never you, know, you can you can never count on a film until you're waiting by the catering truck. I know that's definitely true. <laughs> Um, and I suppose the, the, the final question that, uh, you know, it is the final question because it's what we ask everyone, everyone from John, Glenn, Mariam, Darbo, all the Bond greats that have been on the show, directors, screenwriters. The question is, Matt Whitecross, what is your favorite spy movie? Well, that is a great question. I would have to say, and now I'm really thinking on my feet because I'm as soon as soon as we hang up, I'm going to think of my real favorite spy story. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's tricky. It's, it's it's tricky because you know my instinct would be to go for Casino Royale because it's one of the, I think you know the Daniel Craig Casino Royale is one of my one of the greatest films of all time anyway. But I think I don't know whether it would be one of the it'd probably be one of the ones that I'd watch with my dad growing up. You know, like kind of uh, of mine out or. Is that, would you consider that a spy movie? I mean, I guess it's got, or uh, I'm trying to think. I, I love war movies and I love, and Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy. Well, I mean, the TV series, obviously, but the uh, the, the more recent film was great. Hmm. That is, that's a good question, though, because, you know, obviously I love the big action ones. I love the Bourne films. I love the Bond films. But the ones that struck me as truest were the ones where, you know, like Tinker Taylor, where you're like spy being a spy is horrible and kind of, <laughs> and involves a lot of waiting around and a lot of kind of machinations. And it's not as, uh, it's not as glamorous and, uh, and much, you know, cause I think Bond doesn't spend very much time doing his spying. Certainly not in this day and age. He spends a lot of time killing people. He's basically someone else is saying this recently, just that he's evolved into an assassin more than a spy. Mm -hmm. He doesn't do that much detective work anymore. What are the great spy movies? Got me on my what you Nate brainstorm me some spy movies and then I'll I'll come up with but I'm just trying to think. What I mean give us like an era we could give you a bunch of films because it's basically what we do on the show is charts. Yeah. So. No, exactly. I mean look, Harry Palmer's amazing as well, but yeah. I'm trying to think of my favorite, my favorite, favorite, favorite. 
yeah, it would, if it would probably be from the 40s or 50s, but I'm struggling now to, my brain is, this is what happens when you've got an eight-month-old. I can't even remember my own name. I can tell you, like, Miriam Dabo picked the third man. Uh, I remember. Well, I was going to um, say third man, because that's Carol Reed as well. Is that a spy movie, though? I was thinking it. it's kind of... Espionage. It, like, yeah. pretty heavy espionage elements, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's one of the great all-time films. Let's have a look. What does Wikipedia say <laughs> the best films are? Let me just see if they, any of these really resonate for me. Spy, best spy movies. Come on. I would say, I mean, it would definitely have to be that all this, all this, or, um, or in the seventies. What have we said? So obviously Harry Palmer. You got like three yes. days of the condor, the parallax view, that sort of stuff in the seventies. Oh yeah. Cool. I mean, parallax view is great, but is it a spy movie? Again, it's a kind of conspiracy. It's a, movie. It's a borderline case. That one is. They put Austin Powers. Yeah. I mean, Austin Powers must've been, so that's, that's amazing. Oh yeah. The lady vanishes. I mean, that's, genius mm -hmm. okay yeah. but the conversation yeah i suppose the conversation is a spy movie even though it's not well that, yeah. that's what that's in my top 10 films of all time 100 percent. so i'd have to go for that but i it's funny because i of course he is a spy but i don't really think of him if it's being a spy movie because it's not set against a war backdrop but then why would it be it's got to be I, I mean i would imagine it's either conversation or uh the lives of others one of those two yeah. but i mean i'd mm -hmm. have to say the conversation just because it's if I, you know, push games to shove, it would definitely probably be in my top five films of all time. I mean, I love that one. Um, no, that's a fantastic pick for sure. But it's hard though, isn't it? Because there's so many, well, who, what else is Wikipedia offering up? Bridge of Spies, yeah, that's good. Mission mm -hmm. Impossible, yeah, I suppose. Enemy of the State, Argo, Tinker Taylor, we talked about Bourne. Um, oh yeah, Imitation, Imitation Game, Men Who Stare at Goats, so, and Notorious. I can't believe I forgot Notorious. Oh, God, I wonder if you're going to mention nine... Hitchcock or not. There's yeah, a lot there. 39 Steps. I mean, 39 Steps is one of that's. I don't know if it's my favorite film, but it's definitely my comfort film. But if I'm, if it's like a winter day and you're sitting three days of Condor as well, but yeah, if you're sitting at home and you've basically got the lurgy and you you can't, you know, it's like you want to curl up on a do you know, with a duvet and on the sofa and, and watch that North by Northwest. Yeah, I mean, there's so many. Yeah, here they've got Lives of Others, Third Man. Yeah, so they consider the third man. Well, I'm going to go for the conversation with reluctance because there's so many other good ones. But yeah, that's that's one of the best. We have no complaints. It's keeping us in business. There being so many good ones. So that's, <laughs> okay. uh, it's fine. But the conversation is an excellent pick. And I think on that note, uh, Matt, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the show to chart the course of the sound of 007. Uh, you've been very generous. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Well, there you go, folks. That was our chat with Mr. Matt Whitecross himself. Again, I want to thank Matt for his time. Um, wonderful discussion. Cam, where do we start? Yes, this was a very detailed interview. And I think, like, often when we talk to people about whether it's a Bond movie or some other various other spy project, it's many years in the rearview mirror. And so it's often, you know, you're relying on human memory in some cases to go back even like 50 or 60 years and try to remember what happened on a set or something like that. Whereas here, you know, Matt has just relatively recently released The Sound of 007, you know, not just, you know, to a theater audience at, uh, you know, the celebration in Britain there, but also on Amazon Prime. So this was very fresh in his mind, and I think we got way more information than we would have gotten at a different time in history. Absolutely. And, you know, at the beginning of the discussion, we sort of charted the course of Matt's career leading to this point uh, and his upbringing as well. And it felt like all the roads led him 
to the sound of 007. It feels like the perfect encapsulation of, of the work he's done so far. You know, worked in, you know, music documentaries, watching Bond growing up. It all kind of culminated with this, also working on the Fleming TV show, which we sort of spoke about towards the end as well. Yeah, so we could we could pull it apart to speak about all the anecdotes, but I think what I got from it was this was a man who genuinely cared about the sound of 007 and wanted to give us the best version of that documentary he could. Obviously, there were constraints, like the 90-minute runtime, budgets, things like that. It wasn't like carte blanche, do what you want. But I think within those constraints, we got a wonderful, wonderful documentary. Definitely. I mean, the um, documentary itself is just such an entertainment. And I remember when I uh, finished watching it, I just texted my sister and said, this documentary makes you want to rewatch the Bond movies for like a week. It really does its job fantastically well. And I think what's really interesting is because going into this, I think like anyone who watched the documentary, you have your questions of, wait a second, why wasn't this song mentioned or whatever? Like, why didn't they delve deeper into that particular subject? And we say that as diehards, not as more of a casual viewer of the documentary. But what I was really interested was hearing Matt (laughs) detail some of the things he desperately wanted to somehow get into the documentary that just didn't make it. Like, they just did not work into what the final form uh, was when you basically sculpt it down to its 90-minute, you know, runtime. And... He had so many other things that fans never would have realized that he was dreaming of working in there that were all interesting. And I'm sure we would all love to see a, you know, Blu-ray release of this with like seven hours of deleted footage. But uh, nonetheless, it sounds like it was a lot of ambition going on from him. And it's just about what ultimately the evolution of the project was. Absolutely. He spoke about, you know, at one point they wanted to create their own Bond song, talking to experts who have created the Bond songs and put together what they think the perfect version is. And, you know, the 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 nerd, the music nerd in me uh, and the spy hard in me wants to sort of see what that was, because I always root for the underdogs. Never Say Never Again, Casino Royale 67, they're like the, the people I fight for online, because I want to hear what sort of the outside of the bubble is doing. And that's fascinating, but I understand completely why it didn't make the final cut of the film. And I think it was a wise choice, really, because it took focus off telling the story of the sound of 007 when they're talking about what their version of the sound of 007 is. So totally get that. And, you know, we speak of Casino Royale 67. We speak of Never Say Never Again. I genuinely thought they would be you know, don't touch those films. Because the the thing you always hear, and it's always spoken about online, and I think this is kind of the first time I've ever heard this acknowledged, is that the powers that be don't mind those films. Barbara Broccoli said, why don't you do Casino Royale 67? But people on Twitter will tell you, oh, they hate those films. No, I'm pretty sure they're happy to make some money off those films if they can. (laughs) The fact that, like... um... They're listed on the Amazon section with the other James Bond movies is maybe a little bit of a hint that, well, when frankly, when they were dealing with Amazon after the purchase, they weren't saying, you make sure to keep those movies away, (laughs) you know, Mm. put those into the anonymous bin of streaming. Yeah, just change the D in Bond to a G. It's James Bong films. Don't let them people find them. Yeah, and like put it next to like half-baked in the Cheech and Chong films in the uh, Amazon streaming network. Perfect, perfect. But yeah. 
I mean, they're ultimately happy to make a dollar or two off of these films. And much as some people will try and deny it online, they are part of the Bond canon. They are James Bond films. And so it's interesting that at one point they had an interview planned with Burt Baccarat. They had, they didn't mention who it was, but they had stuff planned for Never Say Never Again as well. I mean, I, I don't know if Lani Hall's still kicking about, but maybe it was her. Who knows? Uh, and, and that really excites me as the guy who likes to sort of back up the underdog. And, you know, we spoke at length about, and I, I didn't want to dwell on this too much. And I, I think that came through in the discussion, but like, what could have been all the things you didn't put in? Da, 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 and you took, you see this sort of discussion online. But it is interesting to explore that. And, you know, I asked about sort of the near misses, the things like the Amy Winehouse and the Radiohead that was included in the documentary. Was there more? Was there more things that he found in the vaults that he wanted to focus on? And we found out. There was an extended sequence with like Johnny Cash yeah. that they just couldn't get the rights to. Um, I think there was something with Frank Sinatra as well that was in discussion. Yep, And I'm sure there was a couple more that uh, he didn't mention or that were in the planning stages. And it's just finance, time. These things are, are real problems when it comes to putting films and TV documentaries together. And they're real considerations to make. And I think he made the right choice for the finished product. But boy, is it interesting to hear about them. Yeah, I mean, as a huge Alice Cooper fan, I would have loved a little bit of a section on his Man with the Golden Gun theme. But I also can also recognize the importance of the documentary as a whole and that we are now taking it down weird diversions just to entertain me. <laughs> I mean, would I have liked a 10-minute discussion on the look of love? Absolutely. But something uh, that jumped out to you about the discussion, Cam. Yeah, I mean, just like the amount of thought that went into it and just the evolution of a documentary because like... There are movies and, I mean, like, fictional films, narrative films, where, like, um, there will be upsets along the way that will change the creative direction of it. You know, you think of something like Rogue One, for example, which went through a lot of reshoots that reshaped the movie. Um, it does happen. But typically, those movies are acknowledged as a mess, you know, in terms of being productions. And they get a lot of press for that. Whereas with documentaries, that's just frequently the case. Like, they kind of change directions and evolve over the course of the putting together and the research and all that sort of stuff. So hearing him detail initially kind of building it all around kind of this John Barry biography sort of narrative spine. Elements like that and how the documentary constantly changed leading into where it sits now as a finished product. I just always find really interesting because... It's so common with documentaries, but we don't really get to examine it too often, you know, in terms of interviews with directors and hearing these long form kind of discussions of the process. Yeah, like seeing it evolve and also go through different like producers in a sense of of, of Apple and then eventually Amazon and seeing what everyone wants to do. Serving a few masters, it's definitely a hard thing to balance. Um, and I can understand why he pulled back from the sort of John Barry retrospective, it, it, much as it's wonderful. And, and like you say, I'd love to see a, a Blu-ray release that's five hours long and it, I get my Lani Hall discussion. Sign me up. But yeah. uh, I, I can, And it's interesting to see like what goes into the decision making to take these things away. And you know, one thing I didn't actually ask the question, but he actually answered it for me before I asked it, which is about sort of the non-linear narrative that the film follows, where it like, starts with no time to die and ends with no time to die but in between it weaves the story of the bond song the bond theme um and how that was more to do with like building into what's happened and the fact that no time to die really builds off of what came before and using that as kind of the thing to 
start and culminate the film, which I think it, actually looking at it now and from that perspective was a really wonderful choice. Yeah, definitely. I thought that like there was a lot of insight given here to this documentary that I think all uh, most fans were really into the documentary. And I think just the amount of information he could bring about it was really rewarding to listen to. And hopefully for all of you listening now to you know hear back. Yeah, overall, it was a wonderful discussion, and I'm glad we got the chance to speak with Matt. I hope everyone enjoyed the documentary as well, and I hope everyone's enjoyed the last two weeks of Bond coverage. I think it's been some very insightful stuff, our two Quantum of Solace interviews, obviously our Quantum of Solace review with David Zaritsky, and now our interview about the sound of 007. It's been quite the Bond extravaganza. Yes, the bar is being raised for Skyfall, Scott. Yeah, how how can we top it? Well, don't worry, folks, because things are proceeding on what we're going to do for Skyfall. You got to remember, Skyfall was a big event here in the UK in 2012. So hopefully, we can we can match we can match the Olympics. Hopefully, we can match the Olympics, Cam. <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> um, but before we let everyone go, Cam, I hear some sleigh bells ringing. What could we be doing next week? Well, Scott, we have a tradition of covering Christmas-based spy films for the Christmas break. And we tackled The Long Kiss Goodnight back in the day. Last year, we did Honor Majesty's Secret Service. This year, we're going to do one maybe a little more obscure, but featuring a very powerhouse actor. We are going to tackle 1989's The Package, starring Gene Hackman, as well as Tommy Lee Jones. No slouches there in the acting department. No, it's a fun tradition that we started with Long Kiss Goodnight and Honor Majesties came along. And we've got a list of some more Christmas spy films. And, and this is one of them. And, and speaking of the package, a wonderfully wrapped Christmas package, it's a double bill next week because we also have an interview with the film's director, Mr. Andrew Davis. If that's a name you don't recognize, let me tell you one film title, The Fugitive. Yep. And also actually Under Siege, which was another big hit. Yeah, so it's a wonderful double bill and a wonderful Christmas present to all these spy movie fans out there. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to get some festive cheer and join us next week for 1989's Gene Hackman Christmas-themed spy film, The Package. Uh, if you like what you heard this week uh, on the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, we'll take on the world and win. (laughs) 